United States. The Economist, June 13th to June 19th, 2020. In the United States section, the protests, no justice, no peace. Police reform, the shifting ground. The presidential campaign, model voters, and more. United States. The protests, no justice, no peace. Democrats are not organizing the protests, but they stand to gain from them. A week after the Trump administration ordered riot police to charge a peaceful crowd in Lafayette Square, it was transformed. The leafy park in front of the White House was enclosed by a steel fence through which police could be seen loitering. The streets alongside it, including newly named Black Lives Matter Plaza at the bottom of 16th Street, in direct view of the White House, had been colonized by protesters and were far more fun. Late into the sultry evening, the chanting throng that had filled the plaza for much of the day and most days since George Floyd's murder was winding down. Black musicians and street artists performed for a thinning crowd. A young woman had set up a stall offering free deodorants, tampons, and fruit. Take what you need. Just know you are loved. She caroled. Well-wishers ambled along the fence line, perusing the banners, drawings, and personal messages plastering it. They offer a cultural history of America's recent decades of racial injustice, including prayers for many of its victims. I'm still crying for Emmett Till. Read one note decorated with hearts beside a sketch of the fourteen-year-old child lynched in 1955. They also included more overtly political messages, such as "Who do you call when the police murders?" and in reference to the White House's well-guarded chief resident, "Bunker bitch." This potpourri also reflects the diffuse and largely spontaneous nature of the protests. A minority, especially in the early days after Mr. Floyd's death, have seen violence. First by protesters, then increasingly also by the police, though it is not clear that any of this was caused by the shadowy anarcho-leftists William Barr, the Attorney General, has pointed to. The vast majority of the multiracial gatherings have been peaceful, however. Many have been organized by groups of friends and neighbors in small towns. By one count, there have been protests in one thousand two hundred and eighty places. Including such hotbeds of left-wing militancy as Sister Bay, Wisconsin, and Sheridan, Wyoming. In big cities such as Washington D.C., black activist groups have played a significant organizing role. Many are members of a national coalition, the Movement for Black Lives, which was formed in 2014 and has 150 constituent parts. Its best-known Black Lives Matter, or BLM, which came to prominence over police killings during Barack Obama's second term, has been especially influential, in part by rallying left-leaning whites, whose mass participation in these protests is their most novel feature. The political weather has shifted, says Makia Green of Black Lives Matter DC. 
we now have widespread multiracial, multi-generation support. A broader growth of centre-left activism during Mr Trump's tenure has probably also played a role. Much of it is rooted in the Women's March that drew millions onto the streets shortly after the President's inauguration to protest against misogyny. Indeed, some of the many grassroots groups spawned by that protest have been involved in organising demonstrations in recent days. One such in Pennsylvania, a statewide organisation called Pennsylvania Stands Up, which campaigns on voting rights, immigration reform, racial justice and other centre-left issues, helped boost turnout and marshal crowds in Lancaster and Philadelphia. Where is this headed? Perhaps not to the radical reforms many of the protesters demand. The current Congress has passed little except coronavirus stimuli. It is not about to start defunding the police. Yet academic research into the long-term political effects of the Women's March and Tea Party movement of 2009 suggests such protests do not merely reflect public opinion. They also increase voter turnout. That sounds like more bad news for the President's overwhelmingly white voting base. A lot of people who don't normally vote say they're going to vote now, said Eleanor, a Hispanic property manager from Fairfax, Virginia, who had spent a long, hot day at the plaza to be part of history with her daughter and black boyfriend. People can argue about whichever party is better for this or that, she said, but on this issue... It's completely clear. United States Police reform The shifting ground Protests against police brutality have already brought policy changes. For years, reformers have advocated a host of policies to make police more accountable to the people they serve. To little avail. But over the past two weeks, police have made better cases for reform than advocates ever could by brutalising journalists and peaceful protesters in broad daylight. Across America, the political ground has shifted as legislators long reluctant to take on the police have started to act. On June 8th, House Democrats unveiled a sweeping reform bill, which would, among other things, make prosecuting and suing police easier, create a national registry of police misconduct complaints, mandate more extensive data collection, ban chokeholds for federal officers and no-knock warrants in federal drug cases, and require state and local agencies which want federal grant money to do the same, and limit the transfer of military equipment to police. Democrats plan to bring the bill up for a vote by the end of June. Congressional Republicans, meanwhile, say they are working on their own reform proposal. Tim Scott, the Senate's lone black Republican and a long-time advocate for police reform, proposed requiring states to report data on no-knock warrants and deadly use of force and increasing funding for body cameras and for hiring officer candidates who have racial and ethnic characteristics 
similar to their community. While legislators in Washington talk, some in cities and states have acted, as they should. Most of America's 18,000 law enforcement agencies are locally governed. Many police departments have banned or restricted chokeholds and carotid restraints, the neck compression technique that killed George Floyd. Though without clear consequences, the bans risk being hortatory and ultimately ignored. The New York Police Department has banned chokeholds since 1993, and that did not stop Officer Daniel Pantaleo from choking Eric Garner to death in 2014. So on June 8th, New York's legislature created the crime of aggravated strangulation, punishable by up to 15 years in prison, for officers whose chokehold or similar restraint kills or seriously injures someone. New York is also poised to pass bills creating an investigative office to look into deaths caused by police officers, requiring courts to publish racial and demographic data on low-level offenders, requiring state police to wear cameras and repealing a statute that shielded officers' disciplinary records from the public. Washington, D.C.'s City Council has passed measures that forbid the police department from hiring officers with a history of misconduct and require it to disclose the names of any officers who use force. More radical measures, such as defunding, which in practice can mean something less alarming, like rethinking how police departments function and redirecting some of their budgets, are also getting a hearing. Minneapolis's city council vowed to disband the city's police department, though how, when and what might replace it remain unclear. And the mayors of Los Angeles and New York said they would take money from police budgets for social service programmes. Along with this flurry of activity have come two important cultural shifts. First, the shares of Americans who support Black Lives Matter and believe that police treat whites better than African Americans have soared. Second, prosecutors have shed some of their traditional reluctance to go after the police and have charged officers in several cities who were caught on camera assaulting unarmed people. Perhaps this shift is temporary. Or perhaps a lot of Americans have seen officers act as if they are above the law, and they do not like it. United States Identifying protesters Supremacist Safari A birdwatcher's app inspires a field guide to fundamentalism. America's cities teem with protesters and counter-protesters. But who are they? Among the crowds that have turned out for anti-lockdown reopen rallies and marches against police racism, various obscure insignia have been spotted. Members of the far right, in particular, like to adopt symbols whose meaning is clear only to those in the know. Others may struggle to distinguish their odal runes from their blood-drop crosses. Now there's an app for that. 
Vizpol, developed by researchers at Columbia University, uses machine learning to identify political symbols. Open the app, photograph the banner or T-shirt, belt buckle, tattoo, or anything else that may contain a logo, and Vizpol will tell you whether you are looking at a supporter of Antifa or the Aryan nations. Most of the 50-plus symbols it recognizes belong to the far right, whose insignia tend to be more cryptic and quicker to evolve than those of the left, says Ishan Javeri, one of the app's developers. But it can also spot left-wing logos, like the encircled arrows of the anti-fascist American Iron Front and the hourglass of Extinction Rebellion. The idea was born at a Unite the Right rally in Washington, D.C. in 2018. Nina Berman, a professor at Columbia, photographed a protester with the number 1488 tattooed on her arm. Only later did she learn that this was a white supremacist reference. 14 is the number of words in a popular slogan, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, and 88 stands for HH, as in Heil Hitler. Ms. Berman drew up a crib sheet of symbols, which colleagues at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism helped to turn into an app. Mr. Javeri, an amateur bird watcher, borrowed features from Merlin Bird ID, a Twitcher's app, such as the ability for users to upload their photos to improve and expand the database. Around a hundred beta testers have taken advantage of the protests this week to shovel more food into Vizpol's machine learning algorithm. The latest slogan it has learned is ACAB, which stands for All Cops Are Bastards. If funding can be found, it may expand to cover more countries. The developers stress that someone displaying a symbol does not necessarily subscribe to the beliefs associated with it. A Hawaiian shirt may indicate support for far-right extremism, but is more often evidence of nothing more serious than a crime against fashion. The potential for misuse and misunderstanding means that at present the app is available only to journalists. Perhaps that is just as well. During a field test in London, your correspondent's children were identified as possible white supremacists after Vizpol mistook Peppa Pig, a cartoon character of unknown political leanings, for Pepe the Frog, an alt-right mascot. United States The Presidential Campaign Model Voters We launch our statistical forecast, which gives Donald Trump a one-in-five shot at re-election. Four months ago, Donald Trump's odds of winning a second term had never looked better. After an easy acquittal in his impeachment trial, his approval rating had reached its highest level in three years and was approaching the upper 40s range that delivered re-election to George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Unemployment was at a 50-year low, setting him up to take credit for a strong economy. And Bernie Sanders, a self-described socialist, had won the popular vote in each of the first three Democratic primary contests. But even by Mr Trump's frenetic standards, the tumble in his political stock since then has been remarkably abrupt. First, Joe Biden, Barack Obama's moderate and well-liked vice president, 
pulled off a comeback for the ages, surging from the verge of dropping out to presumptive nominee. Then COVID-19 battered America, claiming at least 110,000 lives and 30 million jobs. And just when deaths from the virus began to taper off, protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd convulsed cities across America. Mr. Trump's callous response has widened the empathy gap separating him from Mr. Biden into a chasm. Even at the president's high water mark in February, he trailed Mr. Biden by five percentage points in national polling averages. That deficit has now swelled to eight. Polls of swing states tell a similar tale. Mr. Biden is not only ahead in the midwestern battlegrounds that elected Mr. Trump the first time, but also in Florida and Arizona. Even states that Mr. Trump won easily in 2016, such as Georgia, Texas, Iowa, and Ohio, look competitive. There is little question that if the election were held today, Mr. Biden would win in a near landslide. The election, of course, will not be held today. In fact, more time remains between now and November 3rd than has passed since Mr. Trump's impeachment trial. And given the devotion of the president's base, Mr. Biden is probably approaching his electoral ceiling, whereas Mr. Trump has plenty of room to win back soft supporters. Indeed, there are good reasons to expect he will. First, the latest jobs report suggests that the economy may have bottomed out. In 1984, Ronald Reagan trounced Walter Mondale by declaring "mourning in America," though unemployment remained high by historical standards. Mr. Trump plans to make the same argument. The Black Lives Matter protests could also backfire on Democrats if they rally white voters behind the law and order candidate, as they are thought to have done in 1968. Given all this uncertainty, it is tempting to conclude that it is too early for predictions, and call the election a virtual toss-up. That is the view of betters, who currently make Mr. Biden a bare 55-45 favourite. Yet a hard look at the data and at history suggests that this is too generous to Mr. Trump. The Economist's first ever statistical forecast of an American presidential race. Which we launch this week and will update every day until the election gives Mr. Biden an 82% chance of victory. Mr. Trump's unlikely triumph in 2016 left many quantitative election forecasters looking silly. Sam Wang, a professor at Princeton, vowed to eat a bug if Mr. Trump, whom he said had just a 1% chance of victory in November 2016, came even close to winning. He chose a cricket. However, statistical models that used a historically accurate amount of polling error and factored in the tendency of such errors to benefit the same candidate in similar states actually fared rather well. Given that Hillary Clinton led polls both nationwide and in a sufficient number of states to deliver her the electoral college, no rigorous forecast on the day of the election could have anointed Mr. Trump the favourite. But numerous models put her chances at below 85%. And some were as low as seventy percent. When applied retroactively to 2016, our own election day forecast would have given Mrs. Clinton a 71 percent shot, roughly the same probability it would have assigned to Mr. Obama beating Mitt Romney on election day in 2012.
just as solid number crunching reveals the brittleness of Mrs Clinton's position, we hope it will shed similar light on this year's race. Like most forecasts, our model, built with the aid of two academics from Columbia, Andrew Gelman and Merlin Heidemans, applies past patterns of voters' behaviour to new circumstances. Its stated probability of victory answers the question, how often have previous candidates in similar positions gone on to win? If those historical relationships break down, our forecast will misfire. But one of the paradoxes presented by Mr Trump's unprecedented presidency is that voters have mostly treated him as they would handle any other Republican. Our analysis begins with fundamentals, or structural factors, that shape the public's choices. Predictably, when presidents have high approval ratings, their party's candidates tend to get more votes. Incumbents seeking re-election also fare better if the economy does well, though growing partisan polarisation has shrunk this effect. And voters seem to have an eight-year itch. Only once since term limits were enacted in 1951 has the same party won three times in a row. Because of the two-term penalty, these factors correctly predicted Mr Trump's victory in 2016. Until recently, they were poised to favour him again. A typical modern incumbent with a good-not-great economy and bad-not-terrible approval ratings should win around 51% of the vote. However, the recession set off by COVID-19 has turned the fundamentals against him. Just how much this hurts Mr Trump is hard to estimate. First, no post-war president has been saddled with an economic crash this deep. Does moving from 10% unemployment to 15% hurt an incumbent as much as moving from 5% to 10%? Second, whereas recovery from previous economic calamities has been slow and grinding, the easing of lockdowns is likely to put millions of Americans back to work before the election. Come November, will voters punish Mr Trump for the big decline since February or reward him for a smaller gain since April? Finally, voters may not treat a recession caused by a pandemic the same as one with economic roots. Despite mass unemployment, Mr Trump's approval rating remains above its lows of 2017. This is consistent with Mr Biden winning 53% of votes cast for either him or Mr Trump, a margin halfway between Mr Obama's in 2008 and 2012, and one similar to his lead in the polls before the Floyd protests began. Such fundamentals, however, are only a starting point. Early in a campaign, they tend to predict final results far more reliably than polls do. Eventually, polls reveal whether voters are indeed reacting to the candidates as the fundamentals imply. Polls are prone to biases, above and beyond their stated margins of error. Their results vary based on whether they are conducted by phone or online, which demographic categories they use to weight responses and how they seek to predict who will turn out to vote. Their results can also oscillate if one side's partisans become unusually eager or disinclined to answer survey questions, a phenomenon known as partisan non-response bias. Rather than analysing polls individually, our model considers them collectively, 
It assumes that particular survey methods, waiting schemes, adjustments for partisan non-response bias and the like influence reported results in unknown ways. Using a statistical method called Markov Chain Monte Carlo, it then estimates the impact of these factors by finding the values for them that best explain the differences in results between pollsters surveying similar places at similar times. Finally, it blends the resulting polling average with a forecast based on fundamentals, placing greater weight on polls as time goes on. With the election five months away, the model now relies mostly on fundamentals. These are sufficiently grim for Mr Trump that it gives him just a 5% chance of getting more votes than Mr Biden does. However, his overall odds of victory are about four times higher than that, thanks to a healthy chance that he once again wins the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. Reports of Mr Trump's vice-like grip on the battleground states are a bit premature. States' partisan leans, relative to each other, shift frequently. For example, in 2012, Barack Obama won Iowa by six percentage points, while losing Texas by 16. Four years later, Mrs Clinton came closer to winning Texas than Iowa. Such volatility means advantages in the Electoral College can be short-lived. Had the national popular vote been tied every year, the college would have delivered the presidency to Democrats in four of the five elections from 1996 to 2012. There is no guarantee that the Electoral College will continue to favour Mr Trump. Mr Biden has fared well in polls of Arizona, whose Republican lean has shrunk since 2016. The state could provide him with another path to victory if he cannot wrest back Wisconsin, or, along with Florida, a sunbelt alternative to the entire Rust Belt. At the same time, there is also no evidence that Mr Trump's Electoral College advantage has dwindled. In 2016, his vote share, excluding third parties, in Wisconsin, the state that delivered him the election, was 1.4 percentage points higher than his performance overall. Today, our model puts Mr Biden on track to win 53.5% of the nationwide two-party vote and 52% in Pennsylvania, the most likely decisive state, a nearly identical gap of 1.5 points. An electoral college advantage of this size would not save Mr Trump if Mr Biden's lead remains near its current level. But if Mr Trump were to cut Mr Biden's edge in half, the current state of the electoral map would make him highly competitive. In such a scenario, Mr Biden would win the popular vote by as much as Mr Obama did in 2012 and be rewarded with a near tie and possibly a disputed election. The eerie resemblance between our estimate of Mr Biden's chances and many calculations of Mrs Clinton's odds four years ago may give Democrats a sense of déjà vu. Now, as then, Mr Trump has a clear path to victory, an accelerating economic recovery, a continuing edge in battleground states and an ill-timed gaffe, senior moment or scandal from Mr Biden could do the trick. Our model does not account for the impact of COVID-19 on voter turnout or potentially on the health of the two geriatric male nominees. As the underdog, Mr Trump should welcome this uncertainty. His chances of re-election are far greater than Mr Biden's were in late February of winning the Democratic nomination.
But just as it was wrong to count Mr. Trump out four years ago, it is wrong to regard him as invincible now. In 2016, polls favoured Mrs. Clinton, whereas fundamentals favoured Mr. Trump. This time, history suggests that the electorate will punish an unpopular incumbent saddled with a depressed economy, and voters are currently telling pollsters they plan to do just that. What Mr. Biden needs to do is run out the clock. United States Lexington Lone Wolf A day on the coronavirus front line with Pennsylvania's governor is an unnerving experience. In relaxed pre-9-11 days, your columnist was once permitted to sit in the cockpit for a flight from Delhi to London. The experience left him with mixed feelings about flight safety. On the one hand, the two Canadian pilots, who generously included him in their competition to get through the first-class dessert menu, were experienced and relaxed. On the other, the plane was on autopilot almost the whole way. And the only time one of them was called upon to intervene, when a coil of wiring suddenly let off sparks, he didn't seem to know what he was doing. Even the most technically proficient operations can look all too human up close. Lexington experienced something similar during a rainy day in Harrisburg, shadowing Governor Tom Wolfe and his COVID-19 team. The 71-year-old Democrat's evidence-based handling of the crisis has been justly admired. Though over 6,000 Pennsylvanians have succumbed to the virus, the early lockdown he instituted probably helped avoid the greater tragedies seen in New York and New Jersey. It was therefore all the more unnerving to hear the governor describe the large assumptions and insufficient resources that, three months into this emergency, one of America's better-governed states is still labouring under. As Lexington listened to Mr Wolfe and his team fix the details of Pennsylvania's reopening and defence against the second wave of infections they expect, he could not help but recall the image of a pilot trying to rewire his cabin with a wrench at 35,000 feet. The amiable governor might even be considered an ideal leader for this crisis. An MIT PhD who eschewed academia to turn his family kitchen cabinet business into one of America's biggest, he is by turn cerebral and pragmatic. To underline his many points about the plague realities confronting America, Mr Wolfe, wearing a homemade blue face mask, cited Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes, Lord Beaverbrook, the novels of Hilary Mantel and this newspaper. Yet he is by no means doctrinaire. Pennsylvania adopted strict criteria to determine which industries could function through the lockdown. It also put in place a flexible process for companies to challenge them, as over 6,000 did. I recognise the legitimacy of the argument that we can easily hurt ourselves by overdoing it, 
the governor says. You've got to be right down the centre. Centrism is a dying art in Pennsylvania. James Carville's description of it as Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, with Alabama in between, has never seemed truer. Mr. Wolf has been attacked from the left ever since he won election in 2014 as a pragmatic outsider. Inspired by Donald Trump, the local Republican Party has meanwhile gone insane, as illustrated by the angry protests against social distancing. Its leaders took part in. At the time of Lexington's visit, one of those Republican state representatives was revealed to be in quarantine, a Republican colleague having tested positive for the virus. When the governor noticed the story playing on muted televisions in his war room, he permitted himself a small smile. One of America's foremost patricians. He had driven in that morning from his ancestral home in Mount Wolf, a town founded by a forebear. He prefers to avoid partisanship. He is correspondingly reluctant to criticize the Trump administration. He says the president's tweeted encouragement to the crazies, the great people of Pennsylvania want their freedom, was merely not helpful. He considers it. A lame exercise to be too critical of how prepared the administration was. Yet such carefulness makes his account of its pandemic response all the more devastating. He describes the federal distribution of medical supplies to the states as an enthusiastic mess. The six private companies charged with this task do not tell states what they have delivered. Leading to confusion and potential hoarding, the administration's failure to coordinate the state's own purchasing has meanwhile locked them in a mutually destructive bidding war for additional resources. Mr. Wolf gives your columnist's suggestion that such state proactiveness has nonetheless compensated for the absence of presidential leadership. Short shrift. Not since the Second World War. Has the indispensability of a strong centre been so apparent? He suggests. He is additionally damning of the administration's failure to launch a big push for better testing, or for a vaccine, or to re-incentivise healthcare providers to prepare for future viral waves. No state has the capacity to do such things, he says. How can America return to a semblance of normality without them? Mr. Wolf does not claim to know. The idea of population-wide testing tracing is a fiction, he says. To test every Pennsylvanian once a month would require over three million tests a week. The state can currently do eighty thousand, a figure it is striving to double by the autumn. When Mr. Wolf expects falling temperatures to bring the feared second wave, and he means to devote most of that capacity to vulnerable populations, including minorities and residents of Pennsylvania's 2,000 care homes, which have been especially ravaged. That will not leave much for everyone else. We're so far from testing being at the heart of restoring confidence. 
that we're going to have to come up with something else, he says. Like thermometers, perhaps? That's nothing, he says. Then, like self-reporting any possible exposure to the virus, a system Amazon and other big firms are adopting. Something like that could work, he muses. But the trouble is you're trusting people to tell the truth. If I were in fifth grade, there'd be someone sick in my family every week, so I didn't have to go to school. Pennsylvanians seem to appreciate Mr Wolf. His ratings have risen during the pandemic, as Mr Trump's have dropped. Hopefully they have heeded his frankness too. Through luck and solid leadership at every level below the presidency, America seems to be emerging from the first wave of the pandemic less scathed than it might have been. But it is largely unprepared for the virus's resurgence. The Americas The Economist, June 13th to June 19th, 2020 In the Americas section, the Amazon of chainsaws and supply chains and Bayo on Brazil's endangered democracy. The Americas The Amazon of chainsaws and supply chains Big firms don't chop down trees but their suppliers do. The world's emissions of carbon dioxide may have fallen by 7% this year because of lockdowns in response to the pandemic, according to Nature Climate Change, a journal. Brazil is a glaring exception. Its emissions will rise by 10-20% to 20% from 2018 when they were last measured, says the Climate Observatory, a consortium of research outfits. The culprit is deforestation. In the first four months of 2020, an estimated 1,202 square kilometres, 464 square miles, were cleared in the Brazilian Amazon, 55% more than during the same period in 2019, which was the worst year in a decade. Come August, when ranchers set fire to cleared areas to prepare them for grazing, Runaway blazes could outnumber those that shocked the world last year. Scientists say tree loss is nearing a tipping point, after which trees will dry out and die, releasing billions of tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere. Environmentalists blame Brazil's populist president, Jair Bolsonaro, for the catastrophe. He favours deregulation to allow logging, mining and farming in the forest and has weakened enforcement of environmental laws. Less attention has been paid to the role of big firms like JBS and Cargill, global intermediaries for beef and soya, the commodities that drive deforestation. The companies do not chop down trees themselves. Rather, they are middlemen in complex supply chains that deal in soya and beef produced on deforested land. The process begins when speculators, who tend to operate outside the law, buy or seize land, sell the timber, graze cattle on it for several years, and then sell it to a soya farmer. 
Land in the Amazon is five to ten times more valuable once it is deforested, says Daniel Netstad, an ecologist. Not chopping down trees would have a large opportunity cost. In 2009, Mr. Netstad estimated that cost, in terms of foregone beef and soy output, would be $275 billion over 30 years, about 16% of that year's GDP. Under pressure from public opinion, the big firms have made attempts to control the problem. In 2009, a damning report from Greenpeace led JBS, Marfrig, and Minerva, meat giants which together handle two thirds of Brazil's exports, to pledge to stop buying from suppliers that deforest illegally. The Forest Code allows owners to clear 20% of their land. JBS, which sources from an area in the Amazon larger than Germany, says it has blocked 9,000 suppliers using satellites to detect clearing. Soya traders such as Cargill and Bungie have used such systems to enforce a zero deforestation agreement for the region since 2008, when retail firms like McDonald's and Tesco said they would no longer buy Amazonian soya harvested on deforested land. These agreements contributed to a sharp decline in the rate of tree loss until 2012. Before the soya moratorium, 30% of new fields in the Amazon involved clearing forests. In the eight years after it was signed, 99% of soya expansion was on land that was already treeless. But, warns Andre Vasconcelos from Trace, an NGO that tracks commodity supply chains, the frenzy of deforestation under Mr. Bolsonaro could reverse this trend. The deforestation surge shows that the agreements have an Achilles heel, says Mr. Nepstad. The big firms are still not exerting the control they could over all their suppliers. And even if they did, large amounts of soya, and especially beef, are traded by smaller firms with weaker incentives to persuade farmers to change behaviour. The problem is especially acute in ranching, which accounts for roughly 80% of deforestation in the Amazon, nearly all of it illegal. Cows move around, explains Paolo Pianes of Marfrig. Every fattening farm the big meat packers buy from has, on average, 23 of its own suppliers, says Holly Gibbs of the University of Wisconsin. Current monitoring doesn't cover ranchers who breed and graze cattle, so it misses 85 to 90% of deforestation. Rogue fattening farms can also launder cattle by moving them to lawful farms, perhaps their own. Right before selling them. A new Greenpeace report alleges that through this mechanism, JPS, Marfrig, and Minerva end up selling beef from farms that deforested a protected Amazon reserve on the border between Brazil and Bolivia. They say they had not known about any illegality. Soya driven deforestation more directly affects the Cerrado, the tropical savanna southeast of the rainforest. In Mato Grosso, A state that straddles the Amazon and the Cerrado, 27% of deforestation between 2012 and 2017 took place on soya farms, according to a new report by Imaflora and Instituto Centro de Vida, or ICV, Brazilian research institutes, and TRACE. The state provides a third of the EU's soya imports from Brazil. 95% of clearing on soya farms was illegal. A third occurred in the Amazon, revealing a gap in the soya moratorium. Since it only covers land where soya is planted, 
a farmer who illegally clears another part of his farm, say for cattle, can continue selling to traders, who crush and export the soya. Andre Nasser of Abiovi, a soya industry lobby, points out that the area of new soya fields planted on deforested land in the Cerrado has fallen from 215,000 hectares, 530,000 acres a year in 2000 to 2006, to 79,000 hectares in 2013 to 18. The industry should distinguish legal from illegal forestation, he says. It doesn't do annual monitoring in the Cerrado, but embargoing farms is the responsibility of the government. Nonetheless, Bungie and Cargill have vowed to source only from land that has not been deforested, legally or illegally. They missed their 2020 deadline, but plan to succeed by 2025 and 2030, respectively. Perhaps they would move faster if they felt more pressure from customers and investors. One reason that soya giants seem more serious than meat producers about reducing deforestation, says Maria Latini of FAIR, a network of investors concerned about sustainability, is that most soya is exported. The EU is the second top destination after China. But companies struggle to get people to pay more for a hidden commodity, says Juliana Lopez of Amagi, a Brazilian soya behemoth. You know your clothing is made of cotton and your chocolate comes from cacao, she says. But few people will pay extra for chicken made with sustainable soya which explains why just 2-3% is certified deforestation-free. Better labelling could help, she says. Four-fifths of Brazilian beef, by contrast, is eaten in Brazil. Exports go mostly to China, Russia and the Middle East, where feeding people is a higher priority than saving trees. Investors, for their part, see beef firms as unsexy businesses with thin margins. They haven't demanded huge efforts to reduce deforestation, says João Paulo Dibo of Rio Bravo Investimentos, an asset manager in Sao Paulo. Sexy or not, beef producers are doing well. While Brazilian share prices overall are down by 18% this year, Marfrig has seen its share price rise by 27%, and Minerva has recovered what it lost at the start of the pandemic. JBS, the world's largest meat packer, said 2019 was the most profitable year ever. Morgan Stanley, Itaú and Santander declined to discuss soya and meat companies with The Economist. A new 58-page report by Itaú recommends investing in JBS, Marfrig and Minerva. It doesn't contain the word deforestation. This reflects myopia at a time when investing in sustainable industry is rapidly expanding, says Fabio Alperovich of Pharma Investimentos. It is one of 230 funds with more than $16 trillion in assets that signed a letter in the wake of last year's fires calling on firms to end deforestation. BlackRock, one of JBS's top 10 shareholders, did not sign, even though it is divesting from coal. Economic turmoil makes it unlikely that companies will soon spend a lot to combat deforestation, says Marcelo Brito of the Brazilian Agribusiness Association. Shareholders won't want it, he says. Despite these discouragements, the firms say they are making progress. The meatpackers claim they are working towards their promise, made in 2009, to expand tracing to indirect suppliers. 
One idea is to use animal transit permits, which track vaccinations as cattle are passed between ranchers, to flag deforestation. But the Agriculture Ministry has yet to agree. Minerva is considering using a tool developed by the University of Wisconsin called Visipec to map suppliers, identify regions with high deforestation and prioritise suppliers in other areas. Minerva gets 30% of its beef via full-cycle breeding, which it can guarantee is deforestation-free. Commercial restrictions could actually benefit the top firms, says its sustainability director, Tassiano Custodio. We're better positioned to adapt. But change from the top three meatpackers won't guarantee a reduction in deforestation, because they account for less than half of the market. When we block a supplier, he can cross the road and sell to another slaughterhouse, says Marcio Napo of JBS. Industry-wide progress will require better enforcement and incentives for ranchers. We have to make production sustainable as a whole, says Mr Pianes. That sentiment is echoed in the soya industry, where cracking down on deforestation is logistically simple, but politically tough. According to the Mato Grosso study, 80% of illegal deforestation took place on 400 farms, 2% of the total. They are low-hanging fruit for action, says Mr Vasconcelos. But two years of talks about expanding the moratorium to the Cerrado stalled. According to soya growers, multinational firms failed to raise $250 million to launch a fund for compensating farmers who retain woodland. They demand, 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 but don't offer anything in return, complains Ricardo Arioli. Cargill says it will spend $30 million on ways to stop deforestation industry-wide. Marfrig and Amaji are backing an initiative launched by the government of Mato Grosso in 2015 to reduce deforestation through a landscape approach. Fernando Sampaio, the director of its committee, which includes NGOs and companies, says municipalities that reduce deforestation will receive technical assistance and credit and more business from the big firms, incentivising others to follow. But although the rate of deforestation in the state between August 2018 and July 2019 decreased by 4% from a year earlier, the initiative looks set to fall far short of its goal of ending illegal deforestation by 2020. 85% of the 1,685 square kilometres cleared were done so illegally. Among the biggest obstacles to progress is the lack of cooperation from the federal government. In a video of a cabinet meeting in April released by the Supreme Court, the Environment Minister, Ricardo Salles, called on the government to push through deregulation while people are distracted by the pandemic. A rule change in the Indigenous Agency allows landowners to claim chunks of Indigenous territories that are awaiting official demarcation. Even the Amazon soya moratorium appears shaky. Aprosoja, a grower's lobby, threatened to abandon it because it forbids legal deforestation. The Agriculture Minister, Teresa Cristina, called it absurd. Reducing deforestation will require consensus on tricky issues, like the fate of tens of thousands of poor settlers on public lands in the Amazon, where half of deforestation takes place. However, environmentalists say that the Land Regularisation Bill currently in Congress 
would also grant titles for big deforested tracts to land grabbers, sending the message that further clearing might also get a pass. An earlier version of the bill was rejected on May 20th after British supermarkets threatened to boycott Brazilian products. Though still faint, such noises are growing louder. They add to the argument that companies should make changes not just for ethical reasons, but also for business reasons. Supermarkets could speed things up by telling consumers where their beef and soya come from. Getting farmers and ranchers on board will require the right balance of pressure and incentives. The companies have leverage, Ms Gibbs insists. A decade ago, after JBS, Marfrig and Minerva pledged to purge suppliers who deforested, more than 30 other beef firms signed similar agreements. If you could get a big company to take the first step, others would follow, she predicts. The Americas Theo Brazil's endangered democracy Jair Bolsonaro dreams of a return to military rule. What does the army think? Most weekends, since COVID-19 hit Brazil, supporters of President Jair Bolsonaro have rallied in Brasilia and São Paulo. They demand the reopening of a partially lockdown economy, the shutting down of the Supreme Court and Congress, and a return to the military rule of 1964-85. to 85. A few are armed. In the capital, Mr Bolsonaro often joins them, dispensing hugs and handshakes in defiance of health regulations. Neither he nor they wear face masks. Since Mr Bolsonaro, a former army captain with far-right views, took office in January 2019, many Brazilians have been sanguine about the threat he poses to democracy. Some argue that the country's institutions are strong enough to restrain him. True, the president has stuffed his government with military officers, but they have been seen as a moderating influence, and the demonstrations are small. Tensions have risen in the past few weeks. Mr Bolsonaro has become more intimidating, saying of Congress, the time of villainy is over, now it's the people in power, and of the court, it's over for fuck's sake. Some of the military ministers, starting with Vice President Hamilton Morau, a retired general, have issued veiled threats against the court, Congress and the media. In a WhatsApp message leaked last month, Celso Gimelio, the senior justice of the court, wrote, We must resist the destruction of the democratic order to avoid what happened in the Weimar Republic, which was overthrown by Hitler. Brazilian democracy is under serious threat, agrees Oscar Vilena Vieira, the dean of the law school at the Fundação Gedulio Vargas, a university. The president is not just trying to create an institutional conflict, but also trying to stimulate violent groups. A backbench congressman for 28 years, Mr Bolsonaro has never shown much respect for democracy. He has now become more confrontational for two reasons. First, the Supreme Court has launched investigations that involve him. One is into his sacking of the federal police commander to protect one of his sons from prosecution, say his critics. Another is into supporters, including another two of his sons, suspected of orchestrating slurs and threats towards the court's justices. 
The second reason is that Mr. Bolsonaro shows little ability to govern. The pandemic has dramatized that. His refusal to support lockdowns and social distancing has contributed to COVID-19's severe toll in Brazil with nearly 40,000 deaths, the world's third highest number. He is losing popular support, although he retains a core of around 30% of voters. It is a sign of his weakness that he increasingly relies on the army. Ten of his 22 ministers are now military men, and 3,000 others are in government jobs. De facto, we have a military regime, says a former officer. That carries risks for the armed forces as well as for democracy. Mr Bolsonaro has exacerbated the army's internal division and politicisation, which began earlier. Its discipline and hierarchy are fraying. Many junior officers voice their support for Mr Bolsonaro on social media. Four generals with jobs in the presidential palace, two on active service, have more power than the army commander, their nominal superior. The army also runs a grave risk to its reputation. It is now in charge of the health ministry, where it briefly tried to halt publication of full COVID-19 data, political coordination and protecting the Amazon. They really believe they know how to do things, says the former officer. They may learn the hard way, as during the dictatorship, that they don't. Mr Bolsonaro does not look strong enough to pull off a coup. He is opposed by most of Brazil's state governors. Although the virus has temporarily disabled Congress, Mr Vieira notes that the Supreme Court is acting in an unusually united way. Nevertheless, democracy can die even if you don't have a strong man, warns Matthias Spector of the Centre for International Relations at FGV. If Mr Bolsonaro is eventually impeached, Mr Morau would succeed him, bringing the army still closer to power. Another threat, notes Mr Spector, is Mr Bolsonaro's hollowing out of Brazil's democratic institutions and fomenting of conflict. He has installed a friendly prosecutor-general and has influence over the state police forces as well as the federal police. A police raid has silenced Rio de Janeiro's government, recently a critic of Mr Bolsonaro's. Brazilian Democrats, often adversaries, are starting to unite in opposition to the president. They are right to be alarmed. Asia the Economist, June 13th to June 19th, 2020. In the Asia section, freedom of the press, muffled cries. Politics in Taiwan, hands down. Banyan on circulars, directives and rules. And more. Freedom of the press. Muffled cries. Governments all over Asia are silencing critical journalists. It is over a month now since the screen went dark. At 7.52pm on May the 5th, ABS-CBN, the biggest broadcaster in the Philippines, ceased transmission. In theory, its licence simply expired. Nothing to do with a years-long feud with President Rodrigo Duerte, 
but his administration had warned the regulator against giving the company a temporary extension, and Congress, which is dominated by the President's allies, had dawdled for months over renewing its 25-year franchise. It still offers online programming and a cable channel. The Supreme Court may yet allow ABS-CBN to resume broadcasting until Congress makes up its mind. But even if it does, a clear signal has been sent to journalists and their commercial backers about the consequences of criticising the government too fiercely. The story will not surprise Asia's journalists and media firms. All over the continent, they are under pressure from the withdrawal of government advertising, unwarranted tax investigations, spurious criminal charges, hostile takeovers, suspect fake news campaigns, online trolling and old-fashioned thuggery. Since 2018, press freedom has declined in more than a dozen Asian countries, according to Reporters Without Borders, a watchdog. The backsliders include Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar, Pakistan and Singapore, as well as the Philippines. The group ranks 180 countries by the leeway granted journalists. About a third of the most repressive regimes are in Asia, led by North Korea, which came rock bottom in the latest index. Turkmenistan, which placed 179th, China 177th and Vietnam 175th. In many countries where press freedom is declining, there was never much of a tradition of it. The Prime Minister of Cambodia, Hun Sen, has held power since the demise of the genocidal Khmer Rouge regime some 40 years ago. He has worked methodically to undermine international efforts to turn the country into a democracy. The closure in recent years of several independent radio stations and a critical newspaper, Cambodia Daily, were only part of a broader campaign that also saw the main opposition party banned. By the same token, it was perhaps too much to hope that the authorities in Myanmar would slough off the legacy of decades of military dictatorship overnight. Over the past four years, the armed forces have filed 52 legal complaints against their critics, more than half of them in the past year alone. Two journalists from Reuters, a news agency, were jailed for over a year after they exposed a massacre of civilians by soldiers. The soldiers themselves spent far less time in prison. It is worrying, nonetheless, that governments which have always manhandled the press are getting tougher. In Pakistan, critics of the army are intimidated and attacked at home and abroad. A popular but spiking news channel, Geo, found itself off the air for months in 2008 as cable firms mysteriously dropped it. The government does little to protect reporters, meanwhile, from Islamist militants. Of 33 murders of journalists in Pakistan from 2013 to 2019, not a single one has resulted in punishment for the killers. Sluggishness also besets investigations into violence against journalists in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. More alarming still, countries with a long history of press freedom have begun to pick on journalists. Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister since 2014, rarely deigns to talk to the media. Whereas he is merely aloof, his underlings are downright hostile. It has become more common for reporters to face lawsuits filed by private citizens in response to criticism of the government. 
On June 8th, for example, the Editors Guild of India released a statement decrying Delhi's police for investigating a journalist based on a complaint submitted by a spokesman for Mr Modi's party. Armies of trolls, meanwhile, attack critical reporters online, sometimes publishing their addresses or other personal details. Rana Ayub, a journalist who has investigated anti-Muslim violence in the state of Gujarat when Mr Modi was its chief minister, has endured her face being superimposed onto pornographic videos, not to mention threats of gang rape. There is commercial pressure too. Unfriendly newspapers seem to miss out on government advertising. And since the conglomerates that own most television channels and newspapers are sprawling businesses that depend on the government for umpteen licences, approvals and loans, it is easy for those in power to press them for favourable coverage. The Philippines is another place where freedoms thought to be firmly established are eroding. Condemning Mr Duarte's policies, such as his campaign of shooting suspected drug dealers, carries risk for reporters online and in person. Maria Ressa, the boss of a needling news site, faces up to 12 years on a libel charge. Just because you're a journalist, you are not exempted from assassination. If you're a son of a bitch, Mr Duarte declared in 2016. His latest threat to media freedom appears within a sweeping new Anti-Terrorism Act. It passed the Senate in February and the House of Representatives this month, awaiting only the President's signature to become law. The bill's critics ask why it is such a priority when the country is battling the coronavirus and an unemployment rate of 18%. They fear its broad scope and hazy definitions could be used to target critics of the government. The only way that government can curtail freedom of expression is if there is a clear and present danger that the state has a right to prevent, is the far from reassuring response of Mr Duarte's spokesman. Never since the Marcus dictatorship has press freedom been so in danger of being suppressed as under the Duarte administration, counters Nonoy Espina of the National Union of Journalists in the Philippines. COVID-19 is accelerating Asian government's attacks on journalists. In Indonesia, 51 people have been arrested for allegedly spreading falsehoods about the disease. In Malaysia too, where a new government has abandoned the more relaxed attitude to the press of its predecessor, some 29 people have appeared in court for supposedly spreading fake news about the epidemic. A correspondent there for the South China Morning Post is under investigation for reporting on the authorities' efforts to arrest and test illicit migrants. Sweeping emergency powers in Thailand, Cambodia and beyond, ostensibly introduced to help fight the pandemic, give governments free reign to squash detractors. In India, Mr Modi told reporters in a video conference to focus on positive coverage during the country's battle with the coronavirus. The police in Mumbai went further. They passed an order banning any person inciting mistrust towards government functionaries and their actions taken in order to prevent spread of the COVID-19 virus. Needless to say, the actions India's government functionaries have taken during the outbreak have not been beyond reproach, albeit discreetly, if you happen to be in Mumbai. These sinister developments have largely escaped international censure. When Michel Bachelet, the UN's Human Rights Commissioner, took a dozen countries to task this month for exploiting the Covid epidemic to restrict dissent 
or the free flow of information and debate, they simply shrugged off her criticism. Eight of them, including India, the Philippines and Vietnam, retorted that the epidemic requires extraordinary and unprecedented measures. It is indeed extraordinary and unprecedented that those three countries would find themselves in agreement about the proper role of the media. It is sadly predictable, though, that their governments without a vigorous press to hold them to account will manage the epidemic worse than they otherwise would have. Asia Renewable energy in Japan No mill will The promised reinvention of the power supply is not making much headway. In the wake of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011, an IT expert, a restaurant owner, an agribusiness manager and a sake brewer, all from the afflicted prefecture, hatched a plan. Japan needed to generate more electricity from renewable sources, they believed, so they founded Aizu Electric Power Company to speed the transition. Yamada Jun, the IT expert, became the CEO and travelled to Germany to swat up on renewables. He spent two winters studying the effects of snowfall on solar panels. In 2014, Aizu Electric installed its first solar farm on the edge of a mountain overlooking terraced rice paddies, 125 kilometres west of the ruined nuclear plant. At the time, we were fairly optimistic, Mr. Yamada says. He was not alone. Enthusiasm for renewable energy swelled after the disaster. Kan Naota, the Prime Minister at the time, declared that Japan would draw up a new energy strategy from scratch and elevate renewables. One of his government's last acts before losing power was to pass a law to stimulate renewable energy. Dozens of small firms like Aizu sprang up. Fukushima Prefecture itself pledged to get all its power from renewable sources by 2040. The hoped for transformation, however, has been slow and almost invisible, Mr. Yamada laments. Renewable generation has grown from 10% of the power supply in 2010 to 17% in 2018, almost half of which comes from old hydropower schemes. Most nuclear plants, which provided more than a quarter of the country's power before the disaster, have been shut down, at least for the time being. But for the most part, they have been replaced not by wind turbines and solar panels, but by power stations that burn coal and natural gas. The current government wants nuclear plants to provide at least 20% of electricity by 2030. It also wants coal's share of generation to grow and has approved plans to build 22 new coal fired plants over the next five years. The target for renewables, by contrast, is 22% to 24% below the current global average and far lower than in many European countries. Why can't Japan make a really significant energy transition? asks Tanaka Nabuo, the former head of the International Energy Agency, or IEA. Geography and geology provide part of the answer. Japan is densely populated and mountainous. That makes solar and onshore wind farms costlier to build than in places with lots of flat, empty land. 
The seafloor drops away more steeply off Japan's coasts than it does in places where offshore wind has boomed, such as the North Sea. And although geothermal power holds promise, the most suitable sites tend to be in national parks or near privately owned hot springs. Government policies also help stifle the growth of renewable energy. Since the end of the Second World War, privately owned, vertically integrated regional utilities have dominated the electricity market. These ten behemoths provide stable power within their regions, but do little to coordinate supply and demand across their borders. As one official puts it, each company is like a separate country. Power is not transmitted at the same frequency throughout the country. The West runs at 60 hertz and the East at 50, a legacy of competition in the late 19th century, when some power companies imported equipment from America while others bought from Germany. The limited transmission between regions makes it even harder than usual to cope with intermittent generation from wind turbines and solar panels. It also reduces competition, which suits the incumbent utilities just fine. Recent reforms have attempted to promote renewables both directly and indirectly. Mr. Can's government introduced a feed-in tariff, obliging utilities to pay a generous fixed price for certain forms of renewable energy, a policy that has prompted investors to pile into solar and wind in other countries. In 2016, the current government fully liberalised the retail electricity market. It has also set up new regulatory bodies to promote transmission between regions and to police energy markets. In April, a law came into force that requires utilities to run their generation, transmission, and distribution units as separate businesses. Taken together, says Llewellyn Hughes of the Australian National University, these reforms constitute a policy of radical incrementalism. Critics say the steps have been too incremental and not radical enough. Utilities continue to make it time-consuming and costly for new entrants to get access to the grid, imposing rules that are not fair for newcomers, according to Takahashi Hiroshi of Tsuru University. Existing power plants are favoured over new facilities, and the share of renewables is limited on the ground that their intermittency threatens the grid stability. This resistance spooks investors. The government's relatively paltry targets for renewables compound the worries. When we look at investment opportunities in different countries, government targets are key, says Aizawa Yumi of Copenhagen Offshore Partners Japan, an offshore wind firm. In that respect, Japan has not been ambitious, she says. But even if the government is timid, investors can still make a difference, Mr. Tanaka argues. Several of Japan's big multinationals have pledged to switch to clean power on a scale and schedule that put the government's targets to shame. Environmental activism has made banks and businesses wary of investments in coal. Even big utilities have come to see business opportunities in renewables, especially in the government's imminent auction of sites for offshore wind plants. Two of them, Tohoku Electric Power and Tokyo Electric Power, or TEPCO, have announced plans this year to issue green bonds to finance renewables projects. In March, TEPCO established a joint venture with Orsted, a Danish oil firm that has become a pioneer in offshore wind. 
Despite the sluggish pace of change, Mr Yamada remains sanguine. Japan is like a tortoise, he suggests, which may eventually catch up with the hare. Asia Politics in Taiwan Hands down A politician who called for closer economic ties with China is humiliated. Kaohsiung people are writing their own history and God bless Taiwan, read the yellow bandanas worn by many in the crowd that had gathered in the southern port city of Kaohsiung on June 6th to wait for the results of a vote to recall their China-friendly mayor, Han Kyo-yu. On hearing that he would be sacked, they burst into loud applause. Almost one million residents, 97% of those who went to the polls, voted against the mayor, the first recall of a senior politician in Taiwan's history. Mr Han was once the golden boy of the opposition Kuomintang, or KMT, having wrested control of Kaohsiung from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, in 2018, for the first time in a generation. Encouraged by his strong showing in a DPP stronghold, the KMT chose him as its candidate to take on Tsai Ing-wen, the incumbent, in January's presidential poll. Many expected the folksy Mr Han to defeat the doer Mr Tsai. Instead, the would-be toppler has himself been toppled. This reversal of fortune reflects a sea change in Taiwanese politics over the past two years. Mr Han became mayor by promising wealth through stronger economic ties with China. That struck a chord with voters disillusioned with Mr Tsai's handling of the torpid economy. But as the presidential race got underway last year, so did protests in Hong Kong in favour of greater democracy and autonomy from China. Mr Tsai switched the focus of her campaign from the economy to protecting Taiwan from the menace of China, which claims Taiwan as part of its territory and threatens to retake it by force. She portrayed Mr Han's desire for closer ties with China as a threat to Taiwan's independence and won hands down. Mr Han did not help his cause by holding private meetings at the offices of the Chinese government in Hong Kong and Macau. He also once described Taiwan and China as partners in an arranged marriage that had fallen madly in love. But pursuing less tetchy relations with China, the policy of the KMT for decades is becoming ever less marketable. Fan Ping of National Taiwan Normal University thinks China's recent imposition on Hong Kong of a national security law that could be used to suppress dissent may help explain the resounding slap Kao Xiong's voters gave Mr Han. The KMT's chairman, Johnny Chang, has been trying to tone down the party's pro-China image. When the results were announced, he reiterated that the KMT opposes communism. Its members had always put Taiwan first, he said. Several more mundane factors contributed to Mr Han's downfall. Many Kaohsiung residents disapproved of him for breaking a promise not to run for president and were infuriated when he took a leave of absence to focus on his campaign after only ten months as mayor. The impression that he was neglecting his day job was reinforced in November when he missed the city council's review of the municipal budget, prompting fisticuffs in the council chamber. Mr Han also failed to lure a Disney theme park to the city, one of his more ambitious campaign pledges. There will now be a fresh election for mayor. 
Mr Han is not eligible to compete, and the KMT has not yet selected a candidate to run in his stead. But whenever it does, its choice is certain to sound much warier of China. Asia Banyan Circulars, Directives and Rules India's bureaucrats are fighting COVID-19 with red tape. In mid-May, seeking to reflate his political buoyancy after weeks of COVID-19 lockdown, Narendra Modi announced a new ideology. Henceforth, said India's Prime Minister, the nation would strive for atmanibata, or self-reliance. It may be that North Korea's unlamented great leader Kim Il-sung got there first with his slogan of Juche, which means much the same thing. Yet the clunky Hindi word does seem to have caught on, albeit less with the Indian public than with their bureaucratic overlords. Perhaps this is because Indian officialdom, ensconced in government housing and enjoying lifetime jobs with perks such as office peons and drivers, access to top schools and hospitals and memberships of the best clubs has a long tradition of insouciant independence from the mundane world of tradesmen, farmers, parents or other voters. Yet the current crisis has cast this divine detachment in even starker light than usual. India's bureaucrats issued well over 4,000 different rules during the two long months that they kept India's 1.3 billion other citizens shut indoors. Most of this torrent of instruction was well meant, yet many of the rules caused as much trouble as they resolved. This is most obvious regarding tens of millions of migrant workers who were left without subsistence when Mr Modi imposed an instant and total nationwide lockdown on March 25th. As their desperation grew, many attempted to walk back to their villages, braving not just heat, hunger and exhaustion, but beatings from the police. By mid-May, the bureaucrats changed tack and scrambled to arrange transport for stranded migrants, many of whom then carried COVID-19 to the remotest corners of the country. With the lockdown lifted and the economy restarting, the migration has already reversed, with workers trickling back to jobs in cities. Yet India's Supreme Court has only just taken notice of their earlier plight – Enhancing a reputation as perhaps the most otherworldly of all the country's institutions, on June 9th it issued a Suomoto ruling, meaning one taken on its own initiative in the spirit of Atmanibata, ordering India's states to transport migrants home within 15 days. Some of the government's lofty contradictions concern petty matters – Upon reopening parks, for instance, India's capital decreed that citizens should be allowed in only from 7am to 10am and 3.30pm to 6.30pm, ensuring more crowding and less social distance. Residents of Uttar Pradesh, India's most populous state, recently read this cryptic announcement. All shopping malls will open, but all shops in the malls will remain closed. On the very day that Haryana, a state that abuts Delhi, reopened its border with the capital, Delhi closed its border with Haryana. Some two million daily commuters between the big city and its suburbs have repeatedly been stuck in monster jams, caught out by such petal-plucking changes of mind. 
the rules can prove deadly as well as irritating. Perhaps hoping to prevent crowding, Delhi's government has banned some hospitals from testing for COVID-19. Doctors say this is mad. It means they cannot tell, for example, if a baby born to a mother with COVID needs to be kept isolated from other newborns, or if a patient being treated for another disease might have COVID too. Medical associations, including one of epidemiologists, have repeatedly condemned the government for hiding information and failing to consult experts to no avail. The authorities at Manibata can also have sinister implications. The Supreme Court earlier this month blithely delayed yet another attempt to secure the release of a former government minister who has been held without charge under house arrest for 10 months. He is 82 years old, but has the misfortune to come from the restive Kashmir Valley. Lower courts, for their part, have repeatedly denied bail to Varavaro Rao, an 81-year-old poet awaiting trial in Mumbai with ten other elderly activists for supposedly inciting those at the bottom of the caste ladder to riot two years ago. Even Amit Shah, the Home Minister, who was Mr Modi's campaign wizard, is reputed for sensing the national pulse, seems to be infected with Atmanibata. Showing unusual detachment in a recent online election rally, he admitted that the government may have fallen short in its handling of COVID-19. Then he added a question that rang particularly tuneless after six years in power with a crushing parliamentary majority. But I want to ask the opposition, what did you do? China The Economist, June 13th to June 19th, 2020 In the China section, urban society, backpedalling, street life, on every street, and Chaguan on Pondering America's Election. China Urban Society On Every Street The Communist Party worries about weaknesses at the grassroots. Many Chinese are familiar with a poem by Mao Zedong called Farewell to the God of Plague. It was written in 1958 to celebrate the country's victory over snail fever, a disease that blighted the lives of many millions of people in China and still affects thousands. Today, that poem is recalled by officials in their fight against COVID-19 because this too has involved mobilizing citizens on a massive scale and also to great effect. Life is gradually returning to normal, but the pandemic's impact on the way urban societies organized at the grassroots may be long-lasting. Features of the Mao era are enjoying a revival. Since China launched its economic reforms in 1978, two years after Mao's death, life in urban neighborhoods has been transformed. Housing, once almost entirely owned by the state, has been privatized. Many long-established communities have been scattered as bulldozers have moved in. Gated compounds have sprung up, providing homes for a new middle class. Migrants from the countryside have flooded in, occupying run-down buildings that have yet to be flattened by developers. 
Amid this flux, the party has struggled to maintain its once-ever watchful presence. Its mobilisation efforts during the pandemic, however, have strengthened its resolve to do so, and taught it that it can. Lockdown in the neighbourhoods, now all but lifted in most cities, was not a matter simply of telling residents to stay at home. It involved deploying armies of people to act as guards, health monitors, helpers for the infirm and procurers of supplies. Central to these efforts were two organisations, residence committees and neighbourhood party committees. Their memberships are often the same. The two committees, as they are often called, had their heyday in the Mao era as enforcers of the party's will. Since then, they have become less visible, focusing mainly on registering new residents, administering local clubs, distributing welfare payments and providing proof of address and other useful documents. But during the height of the lockdown between late January and mid-March, these committees played a prominent role. Their staff stood guard at entrances to housing compounds in China's more than 100,000 neighbourhoods, policing who could leave or enter. They supervised self-isolators, sometimes using webcams and alarms. They organised deliveries of food and other essentials for residents and transmitted the government's latest instructions via WeChat. But with each neighbourhood having only a handful of permanent staff to monitor and help hundreds of people, manpower was far from adequate. So the party called in reinforcements, including party members, local officials and volunteers. In many neighbourhoods, temporary party committees were created to oversee these efforts, headed by officials from higher levels of the urban bureaucracy. The new committees established numerous other bodies, temporary party branches for each neighbourhood grid, an area often comprising a single residential compound and party cells for each building. The party now trumpets this mobilisation as evidence of its strength and that of China's political system. But it is clear from official documents and reports in the party-controlled media that the party also sees many weaknesses in its grassroots network. It was often the temporary committees that got the job done. The neighbourhood's existing structures not only lacked sufficient staff, but also clout. This has long been a worry. In the 1990s, when many state-owned enterprises, which had once owned much of urban China's housing, closed down, so too did the firm's party branches. Alongside the neighbourhood party committees, these had played a vital role in maintaining the party's grip. Most of the new private firms that began to spring up did not have party organisations embedded within them. Neither did the homeowners' associations that formed in the middle-class blocks of flats. These associations interact mainly with the property management companies that look after common areas in their compounds, rather than with the old residence committees, which are supposed to be democratically elected, but mostly are installed by higher-up government. The pandemic has prompted debate about how to give the neighbourhood committees more muscle. State media quoted one scholar as saying that the party must thread them together with landlords' associations and property management firms. In recent years, the party has been laying the groundwork for this by forming cells within these groups. The central city of Hufei wants at least half of those sitting on landlords' committees to be party members, according to Legal Daily. 
State media often use the term red property management to refer to firms that use their party cells to interact with property owners and try to keep them happy. That is an important aim. Resolving local disputes before they erupt into street protests is one of the main tasks of the neighbourhood committees. Many such disputes involve property, including shoddy service by property management firms. The police use the committees to watch for trouble. In recent years, they have installed officers as deputy chiefs of many of them. This has helped the police to nip problems in the bud, the authorities claim. One idea is to promote the creation of big party committees in neighbourhoods. These would have a clearer mandate to wield authority over other party branches at the same level, including those in firms. Experiments with this have been praised in the party's press. A solo has become a chorus, as one local government put it. Mao would be proud. China Street life Backpedalling The government once abhorred hawkers. It is having second thoughts. In a country of high-tech factories and giant state-owned firms, you might not expect street hawkers to attract much attention. But in China these days, people like Shui Jin, an old lady peddling a wooden cart laden with apricots and cherries through the narrow lanes of Suzhou, an eastern city, are in the spotlight. Both of her daughters-in-law recently lost their jobs, among the tens of millions in China hurt by the coronavirus slump. Her family needs the money she can scrape together. Whether the country needs her on the streets has become a matter for debate. For years, municipal officials pushed out hawkers, trying to tidy up the colourful hubbub that once characterised China's cities. In the name of civilising urban life, they wanted to see steamed dumplings and plastic toys sold inside shopping malls, not from the back of carts. On June 1st, Li Keqiang, the Prime Minister, seemed to signal a change, declaring that street vendors were vital to the economy. Only when the people are in good shape can the nation be in good shape, he said. That generated much buzz about the revival of China's street-stall economy, as it has been called. At least 27 provinces and cities said they would welcome hawkers. Chengdu, a bustling city in Sichuan province in the southwest, was seen as a shining example. Firms there started setting up street stalls in March, creating more than 100,000 jobs, the local government says. China certainly needs to boost employment. Between 60 million and 100 million people, perhaps as many as 20% of non-farm workers, were out of work in April, according to Ernan Sway of Gavkal, a research firm. In small towns, officials are excited about the street stall idea. For instance, Zhang Ye, a poor western town, says it will create spaces for 4,120 hawkers in its markets. But for Ms. Shui, the fruit vendor in Suzhou, change has not been radical. Last year, the officers who enforce urban rules would often seize her cart and fine her. Now they just tell her to move on. Officials in China's richest cities are afraid that encouraging street vendors will lead to a mess. It is not for Beijing, declared the capital city's main newspaper. 
Shanghai has made it clear that it will not allow vendors to set up stalls willy-nilly. Licenses must be obtained, and for those selling food, hygienic standards met. Can the stalls, such as they are, really help the economy? Some investors see a business opportunity. The price of shares in Wuling Motors, which makes a new van that can double as a mobile kiosk, has doubled since Mr. Lee's comments. Other firms that might benefit, including Yindu Kitchen, which makes portable cooking equipment, also saw their shares surge. The direct impact on job creation, alas, is unlikely to be so spectacular. The demise of street stalls in recent years is only partially the result of government restrictions. It also reflects the rise of e-commerce platforms, where products are often both better and cheaper. Whether online or on the street, the main concern for vendors now is weak demand. On one historic street in Suzhou, a 62-year-old woman walks back and forth with flashing glow sticks for sale. With few tourists, there are few buyers. She has cut her asking price from 10 yuan—that's one dollar forty—to five. But the street stalls do dovetail with a separate policy launched last year to develop China's nighttime economy. Suzhou and Shanghai, among other cities, have recently opened glitzy outdoor night markets. Though far more orderly and corporate than the hawkers' free-for-all of old, they are lively, and they help the government to deliver an important message. Officials cautiously avoid proclaiming that COVID-19 has been beaten in China. But the reinvigoration of street life looks like a declaration of victory. Late one recent evening in Suzhou, thousands of people flocked to its official night market. Most were not wearing face masks, a sight unthinkable just a month ago. I was cooped up at home for a long time, says Cao Yunqiang, nineteen, visiting from Henan Province, further inland. Things aren't fully back to normal, but it's the right time to come out and have some fun. China. Chaguan. Pondering America's election. China's elites think Donald Trump is hastening his country's decline. Is that good news? They wonder. Whom would China prefer as America's next president? That is a hard question without an uplifting answer. In elite circles in Beijing, both President Donald Trump and his rival Joe Biden, a former vice president, are spoken of with distrust and condescension. Rather unusually, both candidates are known quantities. Each man has spent many hours with President Xi Jinping. During the first term of the Obama administration, when Mr. Xi was heir apparent to the leadership of China with the formal rank of vice president. Mr. Biden, as his opposite number, was tasked with taking his measure. Visiting China in 2011, Mr. Biden hailed their numerous meetings in various countries and their mutual respect. Mr. Trump has gone further, calling Mr. Xi his very, very good friend. Few in Beijing are fooled. Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden may share a capacity for talking and talking in pursuit of a deal. But Mr. Xi's grim security-first worldview leaves little room for foreign friendships, let alone with garrulous Americans.
Chinese disdain combines the political and the personal. In the unmarked villas, private dining rooms, and scholarly retreats, where, when it suits them, well-connected Chinese sometimes offer opinions to foreigners, Mr. Trump is called ignorant, erratic, and tiresome, but not without his uses. He is praised for an apparent indifference to ideology. He is complimented for his reluctance to condemn Chinese repression in such places as Xinjiang. People familiar with the thinking of Chinese generals assert approvingly that Mr. Trump dislikes military adventures abroad. Chinese leaders initially mistook Mr. Trump for a pragmatic tycoon, a type they have met before. Now he is called a narcissist who cares only about his own interests, starting with his re-election. That cynicism informs China's response to the trade war unleashed by Mr. Trump, with wary but bipartisan support from members of Congress and some American business lobbies. Plenty of American business folk have swallowed qualms about Mr. Trump's tactics. They were glad to see him press China over its unfair market rules and industrial policies that promote local champions at the expense of foreign firms. Detecting that Mr. Trump was more interested in China's money than in making China change its ways, officials in Beijing agreed on a Phase One trade deal built around purchases of American commodities. China has kept that deal alive, with state companies buying shiploads of soya beans and other goods, even as the two governments trade angry words about each other's handling of COVID-19, among other issues. China has yet to fulfil its threat to name American firms as unreliable entities ripe for punitive treatment. Even after the Trump administration said it would put sanctions on China for imposing a national security law on Hong Kong, Mr. Trump's supporters would doubtless call China's caution a tribute to their president's tariff-happy toughness. Maybe, but China is also buying itself time. Satisfying Mr. Trump has effectively parked America's bipartisan demands for structural reforms. That does not make Chinese elites relaxed, though. They fret that Mr. Trump has been kidnapped by the truly ideological China hawks who surround him. As for Mr. Biden, in Beijing, he is called a member of the former ruling establishment that saw economic interdependence with China as a source of stability, not danger. Mr. Biden was a player in Obama-era campaigns to seek China's help in tackling climate change and other global challenges. Yet in China, there is strikingly little nostalgia for those days. Some grumble that such engagement rested on a mistaken American belief that China would converge politically with the West as it grew richer. Others recall how American politicians. Bragged that democracies had a creative edge that autocratic China would always lack. That is certainly a favourite Biden line, as in 2013, when he told Chinese students applying for visas at America's embassy in Beijing that innovation can only occur when you can breathe free. The view in China is that its best scientists and tech firms 
are busy disproving such boasts, tipping America into a crisis of confidence and anti-China hysteria. Just as bipartisan opinion in Washington has coalesced around alarm at China's rise, an elite consensus has emerged in the Chinese capital. Especially in this summer of pandemic and street protests, America is called a nation in decline, a rich country too divided, selfish, and racist to keep its citizens safe. Chinese elites see Mr. Trump as a symptom. And an agent of that decline, state media long refrained from direct attacks on Mr. Trump. Not now. The Global Times, a nationalist tabloid, this month reported that Chinese netizens mockingly call him Chuan Jiangguo or "Build Up the Country Trump." Their joke that he is a double agent wrecking America to make China strong prompts lines like "Comrade Chuan Jiangguo, don't blow your cover." Does such scorn mean that China wants Mr. Trump re-elected? Their elites are divided. At root, their debates turn on two questions: Is American decline irreversible, and would its acceleration suit China just now? In national security circles, many see advantages to four more years of turbulence, with Mr. Trump weakening democracy at home. And repelling allies in Asia and beyond. In contrast, elites focused on the economy fear the premature collapse of a global trading order that has profited China mightily. That prods some to hanker for Mr. Biden. Such people think of him as a moderate who might slow economic decoupling, giving China time to diversify and become more self-reliant. Still, another camp holds that America's next government of whichever party will be filled with officials bent on keeping China down, but that Mr. Biden's team will be more competent and thus more dangerous. Many Biden skeptics in China note with alarm how the Democrat has taken to chiding Mr. Trump for being soft on Chinese human rights abuses. All camps are united by a bleakly defensive mood. Whoever becomes America's next president, China does not expect to be friends. Middle East and Africa. The Economist, June thirteenth to June nineteenth, twenty twenty. In the Middle East and Africa section, manufacturing in Africa—a very African revolution. Covid nineteen in the Middle East, an unwanted guest returns. Libya's civil war, a warlord retreats, and more. Middle East and Africa. Industry in Africa. Will it bloom? The continent is searching for its own path to economic takeoff. The father of development economics and the father of African nationalism did not take long to fall out. Arthur Lewis had made his name studying industrial revolutions. Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana's first prime minister, had made his resisting British rule. On independence in 
and Krumer invited Lewis to be his adviser. It seemed a wise pick. Lewis was astute, respected and trusted in anti-colonial circles. Later, he would win a Nobel Prize for economics, the first black person to do so. In a landmark paper, he argued that in developing economies, people were poor because they were in the wrong jobs, moved them from subsistence farms into factories and commercial farms, and the economy would grow. But how to make it happen? And Krumer wanted to throw money at factories. I am a politician, he explained, and must gamble on the future. Lewis urged balance. If agriculture is stagnant, he once wrote, industry cannot grow. He lasted only 15 months in the job. Meanwhile, it was the countries of East Asia, not Africa, that industrialised and grew rich. The question of how to make African economies more productive is gaining new urgency amid a pandemic that is disrupting supply chains. Shortages of drugs and medical equipment are fueling calls for the local production of essential goods. Tito Mbaweni, South Africa's finance minister, wants to set up manufacturing to make what we need and stop relying on imports from China. Uganda is trying to discourage imports. Ghana also says it's making import substitution a priority. Yet a transformation of sorts had already begun well before COVID-19. The proportion of Africans working on farms fell from 66% in 2000 to just under 58% in 2015. Most of these people flowed into informal services or petty manufacturing, such as taxis or roadside carpentry, where they earn more than farmers. They do not represent the industrial revolution of which policymakers dream. Yet beneath that broad trend lies a myriad of stories. Nigeria is slowly shaking off its dependence on oil exports. Rwanda hosts conferences and upmarket tourists. Lesotho, one of the few countries to have moved successfully into manufacturing, ships out its apparel along South African roads. In Ethiopia, Bontabuta spends his days in a tiny cubicle, a picture of the Virgin Mary stuck to the wall, entombed in a mountain of teff. The 86-year-old trader has been dealing in the grain since the days of Emperor Haile Selassie. The market has changed incomparably, he says. Ethiopians use injera, a spongy teff pancake, as plate, cutlery and tasty carbohydrate. Now many buy it ready-made rather than baking it at home. Making or selling injera employs more than 100,000 people. Across Africa, goods once made at home are now being bought and sold. Rural Africans spend only 40% of their work hours on their farms and the rest on side businesses such as transport or trade. They buy nearly half the food they eat, as well as concrete blocks and tin sheets for their homes. Commercialisation is most evident in the towns and cities. Appetite is growing for processed foods, meat, dairy foods and vegetables. These kids are looking to try new things, says Monica Masonda, a Zambian businesswoman who has launched an instant noodle company. In Ghana, a self-anointed cocoa king had turned millet porridge into a convenience food for harried commuters. Another entrepreneur has built a multinational drinks company by bottling traditional herbal bitters. 
Expanding markets create economies of scale. Many of Africa's manufacturers began life as trading firms, switching from imports to local production. The same logic is pulling foreign companies to the continent. Consultants at McKinsey estimate that Chinese firms handled 12% of Africa's industrial production in 2017, employing several million people. Only a few were eyeing exports to the West. Instead, 93% of their revenues came from local and regional sales. Tian Tang, a Chinese business in Uganda, was founded by a trader importing suitcases. It now makes steel, plywood, and mattresses. Another outfit chasing untapped demand is Roha, an American firm. In Ethiopia, it built a factory making glass bottles for local brewers. African growth is already being driven by internal consumption and investment, argues Carlos Lopez of the University of Cape Town. The expansion of regional trade would reinforce that dynamic, especially in industry. Manufactured goods make up only 19% of African countries' exports to the rest of the world, but 43% of what they sell to each other. Yet Africa will not get rich by producing only for itself. The countries south of the Sahara have less combined purchasing power than Germany. To find larger markets, firms must export to the world. As they learn to compete globally, they also become more productive. Some argue that the key to East Asia's early growth was an activist state, high investment, and a relentless focus on manufactured exports. Africa has never come close to replicating it. An early wave of import substitution was derailed by a debt crisis. In the 1980s, the state lost interest in industrial policy. Factories closed as the IMF and World Bank pressed governments to open their markets to foreign competition. Unlike Africa, East Asia has little wealth buried beneath its soil, so it relied on sweat instead. At first, low wages gave it a competitive edge. Although Africa has millions of poor people, many African countries are unable to follow the Asian model because their labour costs are too high, according to researchers at the Centre for Global Development, a think tank. However, wages in Asia have risen a lot in recent years. Since transport costs have fallen, many tasks can now be done thousands of miles apart. Garment firms in Africa stitch shirts from imported fabrics and buttons. Car makers piece together kits of parts. That makes it easier to get a foot on the industrial ladder, but harder to climb beyond the first rung. So African countries are scouting out a new path. The scope for classic labour-intensive, export-oriented industrialisation is narrower now, says Yor Ansu, who advises the Minister of Finance in Ghana. But countries like us can compensate by basing our model on adding value to our agricultural and natural resources. One example is Blue Skies, a company near Accra. Its workers dice fruit sold in European shops. Another example is horticulture. In normal times, more than 400 tons of cut flowers are flown out of Nairobi every day on average. In Zwai, an Ethiopian town, kilometre-long greenhouses sprawl like aircraft hangars beside the dust and donkey carts. Roses grow for transport to the Netherlands. Covid-19 has thrown many of these firms into crisis. But when travel and trade bounce back, so will opportunities. 
This is not classic manufacturing, but it is not subsistence farming either. Economists at Unuwider, a research institute, talk of these as industries without smokestacks. They include tourism and call centres. Africa's diversity means there will be many routes to success. Six years ago, Roger Lee decided to open a new factory. As the boss of TAL Apparel, a clothing firm in Hong Kong, he already ran operations from China to Indonesia. In Ethiopia, he found a supportive government, duty-free access to American markets, and wages that were a tenth of what he paid in China. So he rented a shed at a new industrial park in Hawassa. If Asian-style manufacturing is to take off anywhere in Africa, it might be in Ethiopia, which has some of the lowest wages in the world. Clothing firms like TAL employed 27,000 people in Hawassa before the COVID crisis. One Asian factory owner says the city reminds him of a Bangladeshi port when his uncles opened shop there three decades ago. Yet Hawassa is an experiment, and much could still go wrong. Ethnic riots have caused shutdowns. Workers rarely meet production targets. Most are young women from the countryside. They don't have the mindset for working in a factory, sighs a manager. Bosses show no mercy, says one 19-year-old, rushing from her shift to night class at a local college. It is hard to get time off for sickness or to sit an exam. Workers' pay does not stretch far, and rents are high, so they sleep four to a room. The low wages that pull in investors also push workers away. In its first year of operation, attrition rates at the industrial park were roughly 100%. Chris Blattman of the University of Chicago and Stephen Durkon of the University of Oxford tracked new hires in Ethiopian factories and commercial farms. A third quit within three months, and 77% within a year. The Ethiopian experience points to the paradoxes at the heart of Africa's transformation. While economists worry about jobless millions, factory bosses struggle to find pliant labour. Workers arrive late and quit at harvest time. Contracts are hard to enforce. Markets gum up. None of this would surprise a visitor from 18th-century Lancashire or 1990s Guangdong. In societies set to agrarian rhythms, the transition to industrial capitalism is a profound social rupture. It carries new notions of law, time, and discipline, and creates new kinds of people: commercial farmers, docile workers, methodical managers. It means loss as well as gain. It should be no surprise when many people are indifferent or hostile to change. The same hesitation is found in some African leaders. Long cushioned by aid and oil money, the urgency for economic transformation is not making them lose any sleep," says Abebe Shimeles of the African Economic Research Consortium. Yet demographic destiny is pushing the continent towards a reckoning. Some 15 million to 20 million young Africans are entering the workforce each year. Without good jobs, many may take their grievances to the streets. Some economists, such as Danny Roderick at Harvard University, argue that automation, competition, and shifting demand are closing the door to countries wanting to copy Asia's miracle. Yet, not everyone needs a factory job. Many Africans will move from subsistence farms to commercial ones, or from living alongside a game reserve to guiding tourists around one.
economic transformation of a distinctly African kind is a prize worth chasing. Middle East and Africa. Burundi, the champion of patriotism. Few will mourn Pierre and Kurunziza, whose regime murdered and tortured. In football, wrote Jean-Paul Sartre, everything is complicated by the presence of the other team. Pierre and Kurunziza had ways of simplifying things. Burundi's president, who died on June 8th, would travel with his football team, Hallelujah FC. At matches, opponents would shy away from tackles. Some who did not were arrested. A terrifying experience in Mr. Enkurunziza's police state. The despot's foul play was apparent off the pitch too. He became president in 2005 at the end of a civil war, ushering in hope that the country of 11 million people could, like neighbouring Rwanda, enjoy some stability. But in 2015, at the end of his term limit, Mr Enkurunziza refused to go. His obstinacy set off tit-for-tat violence, assassinations, a failed coup and the displacement of 400,000 people. People hate him, says a journalist in the country. During his reign, so many people died. Mr Enkurunziza's regime murdered and tortured opponents. Corruption and punitive taxes have further impoverished Burundians, 72% of whom live on less than the equivalent of $1.90 per day. The president agreed not to run for a fourth term in elections in May. Instead, he agreed to a new job title, Paramount Leader, Champion of Patriotism and Leadership Corps. The vote was rigged in favour of Everest Nedashimier, who is not scheduled to take office until August. Pascal Nabenda, the Speaker of the National Assembly, and Mr Nkurunziza's first choice as successor, should fill in as interim president. Mr Nkurunziza had wanted to run the country from behind the scenes. Now, possible rivalry between an interim president and the president-elect could create instability. Then there is the regional picture. Rwanda, Burundi and Uganda have long waged proxy wars in eastern Congo. A power vacuum in Burundi presents a chance for further meddling in its affairs. The president's death may, though, allow the country to face up to another pressing issue. He ignored COVID-19 and turfed out experts from the World Health Organization, saying that God would protect Burundi. This may have been his downfall. The government says he died of a heart attack, but local sources whisper that he succumbed to COVID-19. His wife was reportedly in Kenya for treatment. His death gives Burundi a chance to tackle the pandemic and perhaps of a bit less foul play. Middle East and Africa COVID-19 in the Middle East An unwanted guest returns Countries that thought they had beaten the pandemic are finding they have not. Across the Middle East, months of closures are giving way to an almost carefree normal. Bars and restaurants in Tel Aviv are packed with barely a nod to social distancing. Shisha cafes in Jordan's capital, Amman, among the first businesses shut in March because of their perceived health risks, are full of patrons puffing away. 
Mask-wearing in Beirut has noticeably dropped since the government imposed a $33 fine for going barefaced. From Tehran to Tunis, many people seem to have declared the COVID-19 pandemic finished. But the pandemic is not finished with them. Several countries have seen, if not yet a second wave, at least a worrying resurgence of cases. Infections and deaths have jumped in Iran, where authorities thought they had tamed one of the world's worst outbreaks. Schools have become a vector for infection in Israel. In Saudi Arabia, where the first wave never broke, doctors report an unexpected surge in hospitalizations and deaths. However, governments are reluctant to shut down again just as their economies are sputtering back to life. Stopping a second wave may be harder than it was dealing with the first. Iran was one of the first countries battered by COVID-19. New cases peaked in April at around 3,000 a day. The president, Hassan Rouhani, resisted a full lockdown, fearing the damage it would do to an economy reeling from years of American sanctions. Even his government's disorderly response helped tame the outbreak, though, and by May, cases had dropped enough for restrictions to be largely lifted. New infections are now back to their April peak. Some of this is due to better testing. After a slow start, the health ministry says it has checked more than one million people for the virus. But the death toll is also rising, which suggests that the pandemic is indeed getting worse. Average deaths this month, now around 70 a day, are 40% higher than their lows in May. The government blames the increase on large gatherings, such as weddings. Doctors say intercity travel is helping the virus spread between provinces. Again, though, Mr Rouhani says Iran cannot afford to shut down. Universities reopened earlier this month. Israel took a different tack. It halted international travel in early March and confined citizens to their homes for weeks. By late May, with fewer than 20 new cases a day and almost no deaths, the government felt it could declare victory. Since children seem less affected by the virus, schools were among the first places to reopen. Some pupils went back as early as May 3rd, with caps on class size and other protective measures. Classes were short-lived. Daily cases have grown sixfold from their nadir last month, in part because of infections linked to schools, including more than 100 from a single one in Jerusalem. At least 300 students and teachers have tested positive. Thousands of people are in quarantine because of possible exposure. More than 100 schools have been shut, and even where they have not, some parents are keeping their children at home. The health ministry believes it can isolate the new outbreaks, but laboratories are overwhelmed. Some patients wait days for test results. Lockdowns were even more onerous in the Gulf, where places such as Dubai and Saudi Arabia imposed 24-hour curfews for weeks at a time. This did not stop the virus. It continued to spread among the migrant workers who are most of the population in most Gulf states. Still, death tolls have been low. Migrants tend to be young and wealthy governments pay for COVID-19 treatment. Life began to resume after the Eid al-Fitr holiday last month. Since then, the epidemic in Saudi Arabia has worsened. On May 20th, just before it entered lockdown during Eid, the kingdom logged 10 deaths. 
By June 9th, that had almost quadrupled to 37. Some hospitals are filling up. The number of patients in intensive care units has more than tripled. Three doctors died recently, the first reported fatalities among medical staff. The Red Sea city of Jeddah is back under curfew. The authorities have opened a new 500-bed field hospital in its convention centre. Like their rivals in Iran, the Saudis blame the increased spread on locals ignoring social distancing rules. Yet they hope to avoid another nationwide lockdown and may even go ahead with next month's Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, albeit with fewer pilgrims than normal. None of this was supposed to happen so quickly. Dubai wants to reopen its airport next month for tourists and business travellers. Lebanon, desperate for hard currency, plans to do the same. Jordan hopes to promote domestic tourism this summer. Concerns over public health drove most Arab countries into lockdown this spring. Few think they can afford to do it again. Middle East and Africa Libya's civil war A warlord retreats The government has regained control of the West. Taking the East will be harder. For over a year, the UN-backed Government of National Accord, or GNA, in Libya had been under siege by the forces of Khalifa Haftar, a renegade general. Then, all of a sudden, it wasn't. On June 3rd, militias aligned with the GNA pushed General Haftar's self-styled Libyan National Army, or LNA, out of Tripoli's international airport. The next day, they took back Tahuna, a city 90 kilometres to the southeast. By June 7th, the oil fields in Sharara were back in the GNA's hands and pumping for the first time since January. The militias are now fighting the LNA in Siat, the gateway to General Haftar's heartland in the east. Fight for the whole of the homeland, says Fayez al-Siraj, the GNA's prime minister. Mr Siraj, however, is not calling the shots. Drawn by Africa's largest oil reserves and over 1,700 kilometres of Mediterranean coastline, foreign armies have piled into Libya. A surge of support from Turkey beginning in December saved Mr Siraj. It now determines how far the GNA advances. Russia, Egypt and the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, have long backed the LNA and are trying to shore up its hold on the east. After six years of civil war, the division of Libya into a Turkish zone of influence in the west and a Russian zone in the east, in other words, de facto partition, looks increasingly likely. We're heading towards a frozen conflict, says a diplomat in Tripoli. Russia and Turkey also back opposing sides in Syria, where they have learnt to coordinate their operations in order to avoid a big escalation. The risk is greater in Libya, at least for now. The Turks have frigates off the coast, warplanes and drones in the sky and mercenaries on the ground. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president, wants the GNA to punch into the oil fields that lie beyond Sirt and take the airbase in Jufra. He believes this would give Mr Siraj a financial boost and a strategic buffer against General Haftar and other eastern predators. But last month, Russia moved 14 warplanes to Jufra. Hundreds of mercenaries from the Wagner Group, a private security firm with connections to the Kremlin, 
support General Haftar. Egypt has moved a column of tanks to, and some say across, its western border. It and the UAE see the war as a struggle against Islamism. Libyans in the east are uneasy. We've had enough of Turkish colonialism, says Fawzia Al-Fujani, a businesswoman in Benghazi, referring to centuries of Ottoman rule. But a growing number of people also question whether General Haftar, who in April hailed himself Libya's military ruler, can be their saviour. His defeat in Tripoli, at the cost of hundreds of lives, has revived memories of the disastrous campaign he led against Chad in the 1980s. Big eastern tribes are keeping their distance from him. Tribal elders in the south have declared for the GNA. Talk of a challenge to General Haftar is rife. Even his foreign supporters seem to be growing tired of his boasting. At the launch of a peace initiative in Cairo on June 6th, General Haftar shared the stage with Aguila Saleh, a less belligerent politician from the east. Last month, Mr Saleh declared himself commander-in-chief of the LNA. Despite the GNA's victories, the situation in the West is also unstable. Mr Siraj says he wants to construct a civil, democratic and modern state. But the militias who fight for him are divided by tribe, city and ideology. The threat of General Haftar, not support for the GNA, was the glue that held them together. The jihadists among them want to push on to Benghazi, their home before General Haftar booted them out in 2017. The militias of Misrata, the strongest force in the West, want to dominate the region. Leaders from other cities, such as Zintan, would prefer to carve out their own fiefs from the land they have captured. Each has a separate line to Turkish commanders on the ground and foreign powers abroad. Mr Siraj may no longer be under siege, but his rule does not extend far beyond his glass office block in Tripoli. Europe The Economist, June 13th to June 19th, 2020 In the Europe section, German economics. Hey, big spenders. Italy the not-so-dolce vita. Charlemagne on the Sinatra Doctrine. And more. Europe German economics. Hey, big spenders. The pandemic has converted Germany to the joys of deficit spending. Every Thursday at 5pm, three dozen of Germany's most prominent economists brush their hair, clear their throats and zoom into the finance ministry for 90 minutes of debate on whatever is on its officials' minds. The sessions, which emerge from an informal discussion about the COVID-19 crisis in March, have inspired several policy measures – Olaf Schulz, the finance minister and vice-chancellor, is sometimes in the chair. They also show how far Germany has moved from its caricature as a deficit-obsessed tightwad. On June the 3rd, the coalition announced a stimulus package worth at least 130 billion euros. That's 148 billion dollars. This follows a 123 billion supplementary budget passed in March. 
Fresh borrowing could reach 6% of GDP this year. Meanwhile, Germany has agreed with France that the EU should issue 500 billion euros in common debt to fund investments in member states hard hit by COVID-19. Outsiders who have long despaired of German rigidity find themselves in the strange position of being surprised on the upside. In 2008, German politicians warned of crass Keynesianism before grudgingly passing a stimulus. This time the response has been quicker, bigger and better designed. Benefit rises and cuts to value-added tax aim to boost consumption and 50 billion euros has been set aside for investment, much of it green-tinged. Politicians have ignored, as they did not in 2009, the lobbying of Germany's mighty auto industry for subsidies for people to buy cars other than the electric sort. In 2010-12, the Eurozone, at Germany's behest, inscribed austerity into bailouts and even national constitutions, like Germany's currently suspended debt break, which limits borrowing. Now Germany is signing up for big multi-year transfers. Strikingly, this triumph of discretionary pump priming over rule following is fine with voters. 73% back, taking on large amounts of debt. What happened? The catalyst, of course, is the virus. Germany faces a deep recession. Manufacturing and exports are in a hole. And 7.3 million workers are on Kurzarbeitergeld, furlough pay, compared with 1.5 million at the peak in 2009. At the European level, it is easier to mobilise support for countries struck by a pandemic than for perceived overspenders. And the revival in support for the government, which six months ago seemed to have run out of steam, creates space to act. Yet the groundwork had already been laid. Economic thinking in Germany has undergone a dramatic shift in recent years, says Jens Sudekum, a professor at Heinrich Hein University Dusseldorf. Older economists schooled in rule-based ordo-liberalism have partly yielded to a younger set, often educated abroad with a grounding in empirical economics and views that sit squarely in the international mainstream. Between 2010 and 2015, the share of German economists who told a survey that fiscal policy could help stabilise economies doubled. And as commentators, the new wave have shaped lively debates on matters like Germany's black zero, i.e. no deficit rule. The pragmatism of the new generation earns them a hearing among policymakers, says Christian Odendahl, an economist at the Centre for European Reform. Under Mr. Schulz and his chief economist, Jakob von Weizsäcker, the finance ministry has become a salon of sorts. The weekly Zoom calls cap constant email back and forths. This atmosphere is cultivated by officials like Wolfgang Schmidt, an old ally from Mr. Schulz's hometown of Hamburg, and Jörg Kurkis, a former Goldman Sachs banker. Mr. Kukis helped assemble the Franco-German plan, inspired in part by an old think-tank document on American federalism he urged Mr. Schultz to read. However, buzzing the scene around Mr. Schultz, the last word remains with his boss, Chancellor Angela Merkel. Mr. Schultz's lieutenants claim for him great powers of persuasion in his long talks with the Chancellor.
Yet at home and abroad, Mrs. Merkel's authority has also waned, as her chancellorship, which will expire after next year's election, winds down. This leaves space for others to make a mark. Will the changes last? Not necessarily. Mr. Schultz sits inside the Social Democratic Party, SPD. But like Mrs. Merkel's Christian Democrats, CDU, he argues that Germany can afford its largesse because it paid down debt in years of plenty. In this austere telling, disputed by many economists, the current splurge is a vindication of fiscal rectitude rather than its negation. It's not a U-turn. It's an extraordinary situation that needs a comparable response, says Lars Feld, an economics professor at the University of Freiburg. Lukas Haffert at the University of Zurich notes that this year's experience makes it harder for critics of the debt break to argue that it impedes deficit spending in crises. And the patience of the CDU's conservative wing will have its limits. An early test will be over the pace of debt reduction. Consolidating too early would be a disaster, says Mr. Sudicum. The European argument is a little different. Mr. Schultz has taken to grand talk of Hamiltonian moments, fiscal union and handing tax powers to the EU. The fact that Germany's spending will only widen the gulf with its partners, the Bundesbank forecasts a 6% fall in GDP this year, far gentler than France and Italy, strengthens the case for big intra-EU transfers. German exporters also need European custom. True, when Europe's leaders begin debating the fund on June the 19th, it is Mrs Merkel rather than Mr Schulz who will be negotiating. But the clock is ticking on her chancellorship. Mr. Schultz will probably secure the SPD's nomination to campaign to succeed her next year. If so, he will not offer his CDU rival an open goal by promising to ignore the old budget rules. But he may be emboldened to push the debate beyond traditional fiscal concerns, such as Germany's investment gap, its worryingly large share of low-paid jobs and its role in Europe. If nothing else, that would mark a change. Europe Italy The not-so-dolce vita Italy struggles to reopen for tourism Gaetano Massini, the boss of a waterfront boat hire business, surveys the few hundred people, many of them expensively dressed, ambling in the sun or lounging at tables outside Portofino's bars and restaurants. It feels as if we've gone back in time to the 1960s, he says. Rarely since then can Portofino, an elegant resort on the Italian Riviera, have been as sparsely peopled on a Saturday afternoon. When the very rich moved on to more exotic locations, the day-trippers moved in. Portofino may now be reliving its Dolce Vita years, but it is doing so with hand gel and surgical masks at the ready. Stand here, signs are sprayed on the quayside at socially distanced intervals near where the ferries dock. And at the Café Echelsia, patrons are handed a QR code so they can study the menu on their smartphones without having to handle a paper one. Directly and indirectly, tourism contributes about 13% to Italy's GDP. 
In Liguria, the region in which Portofino is located, it accounts for 14 to 15 percent, says Giovanni Berino, the regional tourism councillor. During lockdown, he estimates, local hotels lost 95 percent of their normal turnover. But they still have the prime summer months ahead, and much will depend on how many holidaymakers can be lured to the region between now and mid-September. Mr Barino believes tourists eager to maintain social distancing may be keener to holiday in the countryside than to crowd onto beaches. We are lucky to have mountains and forests too, he says. The central government hopes to bribe Italians into taking staycations with a discount of up to €500, that's $568, off their hotel bills. Aldo Verdin, the local head of the Hoteliers Association, says his members wanted a system like the one that lets tourists from outside the EU claim back the VAT on their purchases. It was to have been for everyone – but Italy's left populist government decided to limit it to Italian residents with household incomes of under €40,000 a year. Like many of its recovery measures, it seems unnecessarily complicated. If endorsed by Parliament, 80% of the discount will come from the hoteliers, who will be able to deduct it from their tax bills. The tourists will get the remaining 20% as a personal tax credit. It's better than nothing, sighs Mr Berino, but I can't see it moving big numbers. The key question, he says, is whether Italy can lure back foreign tourists who, in Liguria last year, contributed half of the sector's turnover. See that stretch of quayside over there, asks Mr Mussini in Portofino. That's for the private yachts. It is empty. A few are expected later in June, but not one cruise ship has yet reserved a berth this summer. A few French tourists have appeared in Portofino since Italy opened its borders on June 3rd, but Germans will not be able to come to Italy easily by car until the Swiss and Austrians open their frontiers on June 15th and 16th, respectively. Any Britons now face 14 days quarantine on their return. It seems unlikely that many American or East Asian tourists can be tempted to Italy before next year. That will deal a crushing blow to its many self-employed tourist guides, who, on June 9th, demonstrated in several cities. They received two government payments of €600 each for March and April, but many were excluded from a third in May. They assume they will not work again before next March. They are seeking state support until then. But so are a lot of others. Europe France Raoult Mania A controversial doctor exposes fractures in French society. In late March, outside a brand-new medical institute on a busy boulevard in Marseille, a single-file queue snaked along the pavement. Amid a national shortage of COVID-19 tests, local residents had heard that the city's Institut Hospitalier Universitaire, linked to the main public hospital, was offering to test anybody with even mild symptoms. Word had also spread that the Institute's director, Didier Raoult, 
was successfully treating patients there with hydroxychloroquine used to treat malaria, along with an antibiotic. Today, Mr. Raoult says coolly that COVID-19 has almost totally disappeared from Marseille. A contrarian microbiologist with long druid-like silver hair, Mr. Raoult has become a cult figure in France's second biggest city. A fan tattooed an image of the professor on his arm. A former patient drove a publicity van emblazoned with the doctor's face around the city. L'Olympique de Marseille, the local football club, displayed a banner declaring Marseille and the world behind Prof Raoult. On one level, Marseille's new hero reflects a natural yearning for hope at a time of anguish and for clarity in the face of scientific uncertainty. Mr. Raoult has treated nearly 4,000 patients. His most recent study put those who tested positive for COVID-19 on the two-drug cocktail. It reported no deaths among those aged under 74 and said 98.7% were cured. Yet the controversy over Mr. Raoult's treatment also exposes deep fractures in French society. The capital's elite ridicules the professor, a charlatan who thinks he is God, sniffed a philosopher. The Paris medical establishment pours scorn on his results. They are not randomised clinical trials, but hospital-based observational studies lacking a control group. He represents none of the Paris-based French health bodies. As if to confirm his capricious nature, note his critics, Mr. Raoult walked out of President Emmanuel Macron's Scientific Advisory Council. Populists, meanwhile, have claimed him as one of theirs, a sort of gilet jaune in a white coat. He is to medicine what we are to politics, declared Jordan Bardella, deputy leader of the National Rally, formerly the National Front. The professor has a serious research record, winning a top prize, in part for his discovery of the first giant virus. But Mr. Raoult's cocky, consensus-defying self-promotion, he calls himself a star of infectious diseases, makes him a poster boy for those drawn to showmanship. Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro are fans of his anti-malarial drug. Mindful of this following, Mr. Macron flew to Marseille during lockdown to listen to the professor. Three large randomised controlled trials in Britain, America and Spain found no benefit from hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID-19. The French government, meanwhile, has zigzagged on authorising clinical trials. The Marseillais, however, are undeterred. A poll shows that only 39% of the French have a positive image of Mr. Raoult. But in the region around Marseille, he scores 60%. Europe Sweden Who killed Olaf Palme? A prime minister's assassin is named. On February 28, 1986, when Olaf Palme, Sweden's prime minister, was assassinated, terrorism was a remote concern in his country. It took police five hours to set up barriers. 
he and his wife had been walking through downtown Stockholm, unprotected, after seeing a film. The leader of the Social Democratic Party since 1969, Palme was a pillar of Sweden's welfare state and the architect of its leftist foreign policy, bashing America's war in Vietnam and courting third-world socialist governments. He also went after apartheid, so for decades speculation swirled that South African agents might have murdered him. In March, Swedish investigators met intelligence services in Pretoria and later announced they would make their findings public on June 10th. As in many Swedish thrillers, the denouement was unsatisfying. The case's chief prosecutor, Krista Pettersson, said he had concluded that Palme was murdered by Stig Engström, a graphic designer and centre-right municipal activist. After the shooting, Engström had approached police as a witness, claiming to have left his office at Scandia, an insurance company, just as Palme and his wife were passing. But his story changed repeatedly over the years. Engström died in 2000, so the case has now been closed. The resolution has frustrated Swedes, in part because no new evidence has been revealed. The murder weapon has never been found. Engström's political convictions were anti-socialist, and he suffered from alcoholism and a troubled marriage. But he was not a suspect until a new team took over the investigation in 2017. The news also seemed too arbitrary an end for such a towering figure in Swedish history. As education minister in the 1960s, Palme symbolised the country's relaxed attitude to radical youth by making informal visits to student strikers. As infrastructure minister, he oversaw the conversion from driving on the left to the right of the road. As Prime Minister, he expanded the welfare state into a global model, with big increases in pensions, disability allowances, childcare, subsidised housing and the universal healthcare system. He introduced free admission to university. Some of this has been retrenched, much has not. On the international scene, it was Palme who established Sweden's role as an international human rights gadfly. He bucked Cold War divisions by cultivating cordial relations with Cuba and the Soviet Union and made Sweden a haven for Americans dodging the war in Vietnam. He incarnated the Scandinavian belief that some version of democratic socialism was humanity's unquestioned destination. As the British journalist Andrew Brown wrote of living in Sweden at the time, the happiness and the tragedy of Palme's years was that when Swedes looked round the world, they assumed that everyone must share Swedish ideas of decency too. Palme's personal life hewed ostentatiously to his egalitarian convictions. He and his wife lived in a modest home where journalists who came to interview him might find themselves helping to cook dinner. 
That informality ultimately contributed to his death. For many Swedes, Palme's murder remains the moment at which the old socialist dream died. It seems perverse for something so important to depend not on a global conspiracy, but on the squalid actions of an insignificant individual. Europe Charlemagne The Sinatra Doctrine Choosing to go its own way on China is the easy bit for the European Union. Clichés abound when discussing China's relations with Europe. It is easy for someone to slip in Napoleon's view on the country's sleeping habits or Joanne Lai's take on the historiography of the French Revolution. Full marks for effort, then, to Josep Borrell, the EU's foreign policy chief, who turned to a less frequently cited source of inspiration to explain the bloc's policy on China. We have to be like Frank Sinatra, no? My way. When it comes to China, the primary concern of the EU and its members is to avoid being sucked into a superpower struggle between America and its geopolitical rival. For that, the EU has to develop its own independent position on China, argues Mr Borrell. Many European foreign policy grandees agree on this basic point. The tricky part is deciding what this position should actually be. A summit this September in Leipzig was supposed to be a demonstration of the EU's unified direction, with the EU's 27 leaders banding together across from China's President Xi Jinping. Instead, it was ditched at the start of this month. Officially, coronavirus was the reason. But insiders blame other factors – a desire to avoid a difficult standoff over Hong Kong and the fact that, on the EU side, a shared view on China is hard to come by. At the moment, there is unity only in confusion. Countries are split, both internally and externally. Some have no policies on China whatsoever. Others have a position, but a schizophrenic one, with blasé foreign ministries pulling in one direction, while sceptical intelligence agencies heave in the other. One diplomat offered a clear-eyed appraisal of his government's strategy on China. Nonsense. Germany has the closest ties with China, which bought 96 billion euro of German exports in 2019, nearly half the EU's total. But the country struggles to conceive a relationship that goes beyond economics, argues Ulrich Speck from the German Marshall Fund, a think tank. For France, China is a chance to bulk up the EU into a true geopolitical actor, magnifying French power in the process. A 17 plus 1 group of small countries from Central, Eastern and Southern Europe meets Chinese officials in the hope of receiving Chinese investment. The odd hawk, such as Sweden, which was the lone voice demanding sanctions against China over its recent attempts to control Hong Kong, further complicates the picture. Cobbling these opinions into a unified vision is difficult. So far, the EU has solved this problem by treating China as a geopolitical chimera. 
In 2019, the European Commission labelled China a systemic rival. Diplomats speak for an authoritarian brute, with little time for Western norms, as well as a partner on some topics and a competitor on others. Such a frame was, to a degree, a cop-out from the start, says Janka Ertel of the European Council on Foreign Relations, a think tank. It is hard for a country to be an existential challenge one day and a partner the next. The EU has to decide which tendency is dominant sooner than it had imagined. Some areas of agreement exist. A realization that China will not play fair in business is now more or less universal. European businesses complain that China, rather than opening up its markets, is now one economy, two systems, with European companies unable to compete with domestic rivals, unfairly boosted by the Chinese government. Europe is open; China is not. Sums up one senior EU diplomat. Brussels is trying to be tougher in response. A proposal to let the Commission block takeovers of European businesses by companies that receive unfair support from foreign governments will be put forward this month. At the start of the last decade, the suggestion that eurocrats might cast an eye over foreign investment would have led to claims of a dirigiste French plot from the bloc's zealous free traders. Now the Dutch, usually the most buccaneering when it comes to trade, cast themselves as proud godparents of the policy, having previously proposed a similar one. Chinese attempts to drive a wedge between EU countries have failed. A small China-friendly country such as Greece is useful in a body that moves by unanimity in foreign policy. But the quid pro quo of such dealings, lashings of Chinese investment, has often failed to materialize. Grumble members of the 17 plus one group. Direct investment from China into the EU was 12 billion euro. That's 13.5 billion dollars in 2019. The EU spends almost five times this figure just on subsidizing its farmers. Buying friends on such a rich continent is not cheap. External pressure may solidify the bloc rather than split it. A brewing cold war between America and China justifies the EU's own Sinatra doctrine. It is not Sinatra's first foray into global politics. Mikhail Gorbachev's spokesman used a similar analogy when the Soviet Union promised to stop interfering in Eastern Europe. Such autonomy is the very purpose of the EU, whose goal is to allow countries not to be a Chinese or American colony. Argues Enrico Letta, a former Prime Minister of Italy. In one sense, such talk is overblown. America, for all its current flaws, is a democracy whose concerns about China are shared by Europeans. Independence does not mean equidistance between the two powers. Caution diplomats. At the same time, they argue. The EU is determined to avoid being trapped in a united Western front against China, or forced to pick a side in a conflict in which the EU wants no part. Dodging that choice marks the beginning of a policy, not its completion. 
Independence raises more questions than it answers. Will the EU let Chinese companies such as Huawei, a telecoms giant that is barred from America, build crucial infrastructure? What would the EU do if China invades Taiwan? Stuck between an isolationist America and an authoritarian China, the EU casts itself as the last bastion of the liberal order. Yet it has not drawn a line at China's tightening chokehold on Hong Kong, nor even at China's internment camps for Uyghur Muslims. What does it take to really rattle Europeans? asks Ms. Ertel. It is a question the EU will have to answer if it goes its own way. Britain. The Economist. June 13th to June 19th, 2020. In the Britain section, remembering slavery, pilloried, quarantine rules, mumbo jumbo, the P problem, causing a stink, and more. Britain. Remembering slavery, pilloried. The toppling of a statue helps to redress Britain's selective historical memory. Like generations before them, the grey-haired men of the Colston Society processed into a church in Bristol in 2017 for their annual service in memory of Edward Colston, 296 years after he died. Prayers were said, hymns sung. Colston buns gobbled down, but as the Bristol Post reported at the time, the service wasn't advertised on the church's website. An opaque reference by the vicar helped explain why. Colston was, he said, a man who, like all of us, with the benefit of hindsight, may have done things differently. On June seventh, Colston drew a crowd again. These particular Bristolians, though, had less need of such understatement. They knew that the man long venerated as one of the most virtuous and wise sons of the city gave huge sums of money to charity. They also knew that he made much of it by trading slaves. As part of the global protests against racism triggered by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May twenty-fifth, they toppled the city's statue of Colston and dumped it in the harbour. Like the statue's subject, its self-appointed removers were saluted as heroes by some, and castigated as criminals by others. Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary. Has said she wants them to be prosecuted for criminal damage. Other historical figures were soon under attack. The authorities removed the statue of Robert Milligan, another slaver, from London's Docklands. Graffiti on Winston Churchill's plinth in Parliament Square accused him of being a racist. The long-running campaign to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes from outside Oriel College, Oxford. Roared back to life. The Labour Party announced on June ninth that the councils it controls in England and Wales will reassess the appropriateness of their monuments.
But the Colston saga is especially interesting for the story it tells about Britain's selective historical memory. The statue was not put up until 1895, a century and a half after his death and long after Britain had abolished the slave trade in its colonies. Yet Colston was revered. The plaque fixed to the plinth made no mention of slavery. On annual memorial days throughout the century that followed, Bristol's schoolchildren remembered Colston as a philanthropist, not a slaver. It's a city where it's easy to forget, says Richard Stone, a historian at Bristol University. This collective amnesia is not confined to Colston. As Olivette Otelle, the university's first professor of slavery, points out, it is symptomatic of a wider neglect of Britain's prominent role in the slave trade, in favour of celebrating later abolitionists such as William Wilberforce. It is a very partial story, she says. We often talk about abolition, but it was 300 years of slavery and abolition came at the end. Distance partly explains it. Much of the human suffering took place thousands of miles from the merchant's smart houses in Glasgow, Liverpool and Bristol. In what historians term the triangular trade, the same ships ferried goods to Africa, trafficked slaves from there to the Americas and returned laden with commodities. At least 2,000 slave-trading voyages left Bristol, which dominated the trade in the early 18th century, before it was eclipsed by Liverpool. Even then, it continued to grow rich on the proceeds of tobacco and sugar harvested by slaves. In the city today, physical evidence of the trade is abundant, but obscured. For instance, the first generation of grand townhouses on Queen Square was built during, and financed by, the city's slave-trading boom. What does slavery look like in Bristol? asks Mr Stone, pointing at the tree-lined, cobbled streets. It looks like this. Look at a lot of the city, and that's what you'll be seeing. Ms Otelle is leading a project to unearth how the proceeds of the trade were spent in the city. Even after a new biography of Colston was published in 1920, restating the extent of his culpability as deputy governor of the Royal African Company, which trafficked 84,000 people to slavery during his tenure, the city's annual festivities continued to focus exclusively on his philanthropy. Generations of children attended schools named after him or went on trips to Colston Hall, a music venue that will soon be renamed. You know the name before you know what it means, says Marvin Rees, the city's mixed-race mayor. In my time growing up here, it's not something you learned about. Politicians didn't talk about it. Journalists didn't talk about it. And between the two... They undermined people's ability to talk about it. That began to change only in 1996, when Bristol hosted a Festival of the Sea that failed to acknowledge the city's role in the slave trade. 
Following an outcry, a group of academics and activists set up a walking trail of slavery sites. The council named a bridge after a slave, Perro Jones. Yet plenty of Bristolians resisted removing Colston's statue. Richard Eddy, a Tory councillor, even opposed adding a second, more balanced plaque to it as a slap in the face for true Bristolians. Many of the city's white residents in particular struggled to cast aside the idea of a beneficent father figure they learned about at school. I don't think it's quite Stockholm Syndrome, but they were taught to revere this man, says Mr Stone. It's unsettling for them to find out he isn't saintly. But, as the activists proved this week, history is never over. The empty plinths already attracts crowds. The absence of a memorial is itself a memorial. Spurred on by the protest, Colston's girls' school took down its own statue of the slaver and is considering changing its name. Activists hope a new slavery museum and a broader school curriculum will follow. For his part, Mr Reese's priority remains dealing with the city's present-day racial inequalities. As he puts it, guilt don't feed people, it doesn't give people jobs. In the early hours of June 11th, the authorities winched Colston's statue from the harbour, feet first. Soon it will be on display again, in a museum, adorned not with hagiography, but with the placards the protesters left behind. Britain Ozophilia The Tories' promised land Why the Conservative Party adores Australia Although its members occasionally launch into land of hope and glory, the Conservative Party lacks an official anthem. Australia, a song by the Kinks, released in 1969, would be a good pick. It satirises the aspirations of the ten-pound poms who took up the offer of cut-rate passage out of stuffy post-war Britain for a new life by the beach. No class distinction, no drug addiction, no one hesitates at life or beats around the bush in Australia. As Britain and Australia begin negotiations on a trade deal, the Tories are in the grip of Ozophilia. Boris Johnson, who picked up a pair of skimpy shorts and a widened vocabulary on his gap year at Geelong Grammar School, holds Australia up as a model of prosperity outside the European Union. The government is creating an Australian-style immigration system, which will discriminate by skills and qualifications. The Prime Minister has even attempted to rebrand an ugly no-deal exit from the EU as an Australian deal. Sir Linton Crosby, an Australian political adviser, and his protégé, Isaac Levido, have been teaching the Conservative Party how to win elections for the past decade. Tony Abbott, the former Australian Prime Minister, is a star of the Tory conference fringe. Alexander Downer, an erstwhile Australian High Commissioner who advocates taking a tough line on Europe, is chairman of Policy Exchange, a think tank close to Downing Street. Conservatism is developing an Australian accent. 
Mr. Johnson has repainted the Tories as a classless, plain-speaking, macho outfit, not unlike Scott Morrison's Liberal Party. Rich, stable, and not led by Donald Trump, Australia is at present a more attractive template than America, which has long fascinated British politicians of both right and left. The Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership, which also includes New Zealand, Canada and America, is increasingly important. And Britain and Australia think ever more alike about the risks of doing business with China. Often the most unyielding Brexiteers are the keenest on Australia. For them, restoring trade ties to the Commonwealth, which Britain mostly cut when it joined the European Economic Community in 1973, is one of the great opportunities created by Britain's departure from the EU. Shortly after the Brexit vote in 2016, a poll found that Leavers gave priority to a trade deal with Australia. For Remainers, the country was not even among the top five. In How We Invented Freedom and Why It Matters, Daniel Hannan, a former MEP and star of the Eurosceptic circuit, describes the Anglosphere as a civilizational model in need of rescue. Australia's popularity among Conservatives reflects its allure to Britons in general. No other country is regarded so favourably, according to YouGov, a pollster. That is a product of Australia's recent history as a destination for Brits to escape their rainy island. Post-war emigres were promised a technicolour workers' paradise of high wages, plentiful houses and sun. Until 1966, the country followed a white Australia policy, which appealed to some. Australia's modern points-based immigration system is a hit with British focus groups, partly because so many participants have relatives who moved there, says Jill Rutter of British Future, a think tank specialising in migration. Wanted Down Under, a popular daytime television show, features would-be emigrants exploring the Australian labour market. A recent tourism ad featuring Kylie Minogue was described as a little bit of escapism for Brexit-weary Brits. But Australia is decreasingly white and no longer very British. Only 5% of its inhabitants were born there. Most Australian foreign policy hands know that the future lies in the Indo-Pacific. Trade negotiations are likely to be hard-nosed and uncomfortable for British farmers. Britain's negotiators can certainly cut their teeth on an Australian deal, says Dmitry Grozubinsky, a former Australian trade official and director of Explain Trade, a consultancy. But the British should not imagine that any combination of deals with distant lands can substitute for EU membership. Britain Quarantine rules Mumbo-jumbo Britain's new travel policy makes little sense. Throughout April and May, as most countries closed their borders and imposed strict limits on who could enter, Britain remained defiantly open. Now, as much of Europe starts opening up again, Britain is again going in the opposite direction. Under rules introduced on June 8th, 
anybody entering Britain at any port must fill in a form with their contact details and self-isolate for a fortnight. They will be allowed to take public transport from the airport, to shop for groceries and to leave the country again. Public Health England, a government agency, will phone people to ask if they are complying. Rule breakers face a £1,000 fine. Other European countries that imposed quarantines are either unwinding them or tailoring regulations according to the risk level in the passenger's country of origin. Britain's rules apply wherever people come from, including countries that have the virus under control. If we had different rules for different countries, it may complicate matters, says a Home Office spokesman. Businesses are bewildered. Border officers are befuddled. Even the government scientists are stumped. They note that few countries' infection rates are higher than Britain's. Michael O'Leary, the boss of Ryanair, Europe's largest airline, reckons that Britons know the rules are rubbish. That may be so, but they are also holding off booking summer holidays in large numbers, whilst returning holidaymakers are also required to quarantine themselves. About six in ten Britons go on a foreign holiday in a normal year. But a YouGov poll found that just 16% of Brits are planning an international trip in the next six months. Border officers charged with implementing the rules say they can neither understand nor enforce them. Guidance was not published until late on the Friday before they went into force, says Lucy Morton of the ISU, the Immigration Officials' Union, adding that staff had been promised time to digest the information and a brief training programme. Officials are not checking whether the forms filled in by arriving passengers are true, only that it's broadly credible, so long as they have not put something completely dopey, such as Buckingham Palace. But the greatest confusion is within the travel industry, which must plan ahead. The government is due to review the rules every three weeks, starting on June 29th. John Holland Kay, who runs Heathrow, Britain's busiest airport, thinks it is unlikely that much will change on that date. So a lot of holiday companies have made the call that 20th of July will be the opening update, he says, citing Virgin Atlantic, which plans to resume operations from that date. That is really a gamble in the absence of any information. Airlines, tour operators and holidaymakers want an explanation for the government's perplexing policy. A better idea might be to ask YouGov. I know that some newspapers are obviously opposed to it for whatever reason, says the Home Office spokesman. But the polling shows a 63% of Britons support these measures. The government says it is following the science. Psephology is a science too. Britain Sleep under lockdown Bedtime story Britons are dreaming more and dreaming more vividly. Few words in the English language are more terrifying than I had a weird dream last night. They tend to be followed by a series of pointless vignettes and the question, so what do you make of it? Lots of Britons have probably had to sit through a conversation like this since the lockdown started. That is because, according to a study by King's College London and Ipsos Mori, a pollster, some 40% of people report having more vivid dreams during the lockdown than they usually would. 
The changes in people's domestic arrangements are probably largely responsible. For many, day-to-day -day life is stressful and busy. Four out of five people use an alarm to wake up. School and work start too early in the morning. About a third of Brits have poor sleep, according to the National Health Service. But over the past 12 weeks, as much of the country has stayed at home, people have been sleeping more. The timing of the extra sleep matters. Dreaming occurs when the body is in something called REM sleep, which occurs mainly towards the end of the night, says Dr Guy Leschziner of Guy's Hospital. No relation. People who have been catching an extra hour in the morning will have had deeper dreams. And because they are waking up more gently, they are more likely to remember their dreams, says Dr Hugh Selsick of the Royal London Hospital. That may be only part of the explanation. Some people suffering from depression or post-traumatic stress disorder report increased dreaming and nightmares too. Doctors believe this is a way for the mind to deal with difficult things. Even for those who are not finding the COVID-19 crisis difficult, it is distinctly odd. It might be that vivid dreams reported by the participants in our survey are therapeutic and that they may help us process the extraordinary reality that we are living in, says Dr Ivana Rosenweig of King's College, who advised on the study. Weird dreams are normal during and after periods of collective trauma. Researchers found that the 9-11 attacks in 2001 made Americans' dreams more intense. Charlotte Barat, a Jewish writer in Berlin, documented the nighttime confections of Germans in The Third Reich of Dreams. Dr Russell Foster of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at Oxford says that when Boris Johnson was struck with Covid-19, he dreamed of the Prime Minister. He is not sure whether that was out of concern for Mr Johnson or concern for the country. All of this is conjecture, he says, but what you can say with certainty is you would expect vivid dreams in times of stress. It's the brain trying to make sense of the emotional world. When life does eventually return to normal, with children to feed and clothe and drop off at school and trains and buses to catch to work, Britons can expect to sleep less and dream less and to remember their dreams less. But there are things they can do to improve their sleep, like keeping to a routine and avoiding phones before bed. And there are things employers can do to ensure their workers are well-rested and therefore more productive too. Dr Foster suggests replacing high-sugar snacks with small protein-rich ones and lighting offices brightly enough to match employees' circadian rhythms. For many of the nation's tired workers, a good night's sleep would be a dream come true. Britain Courts in a pandemic Rough justice Radical solutions are needed to get jury trials back on track. Unlike many other depictions of Lady Justice, the statue that stands atop the Old Bailey, England's most famous criminal court, does not wear a blindfold. Her maidenly form alone is said to guarantee her impartiality. She should, however, consider a mask. In the courtrooms below, each juror gets one as they take their seats. This building has never been cleaner in its 100-year history, the judge assures them. Because of the pandemic, many hearings in England and Wales have switched from courtrooms to front rooms. 
The Supreme Court is entirely remote. Lawyers are now accustomed to telephone and video hearings. When the High Court heard a preliminary argument in the Duchess of Sussex's privacy claim against the Mail on Sunday, on April 24th, Meghan Merkel and Prince Harry listened in from Los Angeles. Yet there is a glaring exception to this tale of digital adaptation. Jury trials were postponed indefinitely, since few thought it suitable for jurors to convict their peers by Microsoft Teams. A handful of courts, including the Old Bailey, resumed such trials on May 18th. The court service hopes to open most criminal courts by July. Even optimistic estimates suggest they will be able to hear only half as many trials as usual. As well as the judge, jury and sometimes several defendants, each trial involves a phalanx of barristers and solicitors, court officials, witnesses, victims, relatives, journalists and the merely nosy. Keeping them apart is tricky. Trials that usually take up a single courtroom might now require three one for the hearing, one for jury deliberation and one for observers to watch via video link. As the judge in the Old Bailey case adds, we're all going to have to be patient. For defendants waiting to plead their innocence or victims desperate for their day in court, patience is in short supply. Prior to the pandemic, most victims waited more than a year to see justice done. In some parts of the country, a two-year wait was the norm. Thanks in part to cost-cutting measures limiting the number of days judges can sit, criminal courts had a backlog of 37,000 cases, a queue which is now growing by about 1,000 cases a month. Innovation is in order. One option is to shrink the size of the jury, perhaps to seven members. That is unlikely to help much, since courts would still require overspill space for observers and jury deliberations. A more radical alternative would be trial by judge alone. But lawyers and even many judges rule that out. Justice must not only be done and be seen to be done, but feel to be done, says Simon Davis of the Law Society, which represents solicitors. A third idea is to establish makeshift courtrooms in bigger venues. There is talk of requisitioning empty London theatres, you can imagine some of our criminal barrister friends loving that, quips one observer. The best solution may be the one most remain unwilling to countenance, online jury trials. Justice, a legal charity, has run experiments showing how they could work. In the next test, designed to overcome objections that jurors might struggle with technology or lack room at home, jurors will all log on from a church hall with someone on hand to help with IT. A similar setup in a sports hall would allow dozens of jurors to hear different cases simultaneously. In the end, the judiciary will need to weigh up opposing principles of justice. In-person jury trials may be the ideal, but justice delayed is justice denied. Britain The pea problem Causing a stink A nation is caught short It was a mortifying moment. Crouched in a bush, Katie was confronted by a dog owner whose hound had discovered her alfresco lavatory. 
the woman remonstrated loudly that, Pooch practices notwithstanding, Katie shouldn't relieve herself in a public place. It was quite embarrassing and awkward, as I was mid-pee, and I just tried to explain it was a desperate situation, she recalls. Since 1990, relieving oneself in public has been an offence, but lockdown has closed many public toilets, as well as cafes and pubs. That makes long outings difficult for all sorts of people, including menstruating women and those reluctant to relieve themselves in public. Emma Curtis suffers from irritable bowel syndrome, exacerbated by the anxiety the COVID-19 crisis has caused. She hasn't been able to join her family for walks along the coast in Dorset near her home as a result. Many are less inhibited and throw caution and bodily fluids to the wind. Beauty spots have been sullied by urine and worse. Takeaway pints and the warm weather do not help. David Vincent, a retired chef living near Saundersfoot Beach in Pembrokeshire, complains that the amount of people using the beach as a loo is unprecedented. Stuart Fox runs the White Horse Inn in Dover. People have been using the bins in an alleyway behind the pub for their own human waste. Complaints to the council have gone unanswered, so it's just been a case of us throwing out hot buckets of bleachy water to minimise the stench. Public incontinence is encouraging councils to try to keep people away from popular venues. After complaints of large gatherings, public nuisance, public urination and littering on our seafront, Brighton and Hove Council restricted access to the main beach by blocking access to the promenade at certain points. Brian Perry, a retired mental health worker, launched an online petition asking the government to close Blackpool to visitors. The city has been invaded by people leaving our town filthy and not taking notice of spacing and urinating in the streets, he complained. Within four days, he collected more than 14,000 signatures. Hackney Council in London reopened its park toilets on May 30th and cleans them seven times a day. But on sunny weekends, the parks are jammed and queues long. In London Fields alone, 72 fines at £150 a pop were issued for littering or public urination over the last weekend in May. More than 300 fines have been issued across the borough since the start of lockdown, around 90% for urination. The mayor, Philip Glanville, tweeted that public urinators were morally culpable. The council has issued so many fines that at one point it ran out of paper – presumably a concern shared by the guerrilla defecators. Britain Social Insurance The Great Risk Shift COVID-19 is drawing the state back into the insurance business. Rarely, if ever, has a proposal moved from policy paper to implementation in a matter of days. The Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme was first proposed by the Resolution Foundation, a think tank, on March 19th, as the scale of the hit to the economy from the pandemic became clearer. Four days later, on March 23rd, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, made the furlough scheme the centrepiece of the government's economic response to the virus. Initially due to run for just three months, it will now be in place until at least October, 
and is currently paying 80% of the wages, up to £2,500, that's $3,200 a month, of nearly 9 million British workers. It costs the Treasury about the same each month as the National Health Service, or NHS. Viewed through a narrow lens, the furlough scheme is simply a pragmatic response to an unprecedented economic shock, whereby the government is bearing an unusually large share of the risks posed by the COVID-19 crisis. But through a wider lens, it can be seen as a reversal of a long trend which has shifted the burden of risk onto individuals. In the first half of the 20th century, the state took it upon itself to protect people against, for instance, unemployment and ill health, establishing compulsory unemployment insurance in 1911 and the NHS in 1948. In the 1980s, when Britain got fed up with the high tax rates levied in part to pay for this, the national mood shifted and the direction of travel changed. Jacob Hacker, a political scientist, has observed the government and corporations dumping risk back onto individuals in America and dubbed this phenomenon the Great Risk Shift. In Britain, defined benefit, or DB, schemes, whereby workers pay a set percentage of their income each month in return for a certain level of annual income based on their salary when they retire, used to be the norm in the private sector. Workers in a DB system are, so long as the firm stays afloat, guaranteed their income no matter how long they live or how the investment portfolios perform. Such schemes are now mostly closed to new members and have been replaced by defined contribution schemes into which people pay with no certainty about what they will get out of them. Individuals, not firms or government, bear the risk if they live longer than expected or the asset market performs worse than expected. Work, too, has become more precarious. Construction workers, for example, are now much more likely to be self-employed than in the 1980s, even if they work only for one firm, which often leaves them with meaner benefits if they fall sick. Career firms often require employees to provide their own vehicles and bear the risk if they go wrong. Zero-hour contracts, under which the employer does not guarantee a period of paid employment, are welcomed for their flexibility by many, but have been abused by unscrupulous employers. Volatility is a risk for workers, especially if they are poorly paid. The nearer the breadline you are, the more harmful its consequences are. A study by the Resolution Foundation of Income Volatility found that four in five low-paid workers, defined as earning around £10,000 a year, experienced volatile monthly earnings, compared with just two in three higher-paid workers, defined as an income of around £35,000. About two in five workers suffer what they term persistent volatility, with significant changes in their monthly income at least six times a year, and the state does less to protect those who find themselves out of work than it used to. Claire McNeil of the Institute of Public Policy Research, a left-leaning think tank, argues that the reduced levels of unemployment support are the most vivid example of the risk shift. The value of the main out-of-work benefit, as a share of average earnings, fell from more than 30% in the late 1960s to under 15% by 2019. The shift that the furlough scheme represents may be no more than a break in a long-term trend, or it may presage a more significant reversal. 
Britain's new political geography, with the government's majority reliant on the so-called Red Wall of 50 former Labour seats in Wales, the Midlands and the North, points to a different policy agenda. Welfare spending runs at £2,300 per working-age person in those seats, compared with £1,600 in other Conservative areas, while average earnings are £44 a week lower. I'm not sure people in the Red Wall are as happy bearing risk as our older coalition was, says a Tory MP. Social care is one area where the direction of travel may be towards collectivising risk. A report in 2019 from Policy Exchange, a centre-right think tank, with a foreword from Jacob Rees-Mogg, a right-leaning cabinet member, called for long-term social care to be funded through general taxation rather than by individuals. Some free market Tories now worry that a larger state, which carries more of the risk burden of society, will be a lasting consequence of the pandemic. Robert Colville of the Centre for Policy Studies, a free market think tank, argues that resilience matters as much as risk. Spreading wealth more widely is one alternative to a state-funded safety net. Those with assets to fall back on are better able to bear risks. And Mr Colville says the old popular capitalism arguments about spreading home and share ownership are just as relevant today. But that argument may be less politically appealing to this Conservative government than it was to previous ones. Britain Budget Battle for the working class Labour has a fighting chance of recapturing the territory that Boris Johnson won in the last election. The Black Lives Matter movement has convulsed British politics. Large crowds have marched in Whitehall and Bristol. Statues of former slave owners have been felled and others are in the felling line. It sometimes looks as if Britain is turning into America and that the major galvanising force in politics will soon be race rather than class. But race is nothing like as divisive in Britain as it is in the United States. America fought a bloody civil war to abolish slavery in 1861-65, to whereas Britain abolished the slave trade by Act of Parliament in 1807. Race has intensified as a dividing line in American politics in recent decades, with the Democratic Party becoming the party of minorities and white elites, and the Republican Party becoming the party of the white backlash. British politics has, thank God, avoided this. Britain's first black prime minister could well be a conservative. The party has black high flyers such as Kwasi Kwarteng and Bim Afolami. The fact that both those rising stars of the Conservative Party were educated at Eton is not a coincidence. Class remains a more powerful force in British society than it is in many other countries, and class identities will continue to matter more than racial identities in determining voting behaviour. The workers matter much more than the wokers. The divisions that education and accent cleave run deep in British society. Nearly three-quarters of Britons say that it is very or fairly difficult to move between classes, compared with 65% a decade ago. A majority of Britons still identify as working class. 
politicians' attempts to bury the issue have failed. Sir John Major trumpeted the idea that Britain is a classless society. Tony Blair declared that he was building a post-class meritocracy. David Cameron tried to pretend that he and his wife were members of classless Middle England, despite the blue blood that runs in their veins. But class struck back. Both Brexit and the 2019 election were decided, to a striking degree, by working-class voters in Britain's equivalent of flyover country. The same people will decide the outcome of the next election. Young people and urban ethnic minorities tend to vote Labour. Older people and rural folk are Conservative. The provincial working class are today's swing voters. They have been moving towards the Tories over the past decade, a shift that turned into a stampede in 2019. But as Boris Johnson said on the morning after the election, they have not given the Tories their votes, they have merely lent them. Mr Johnson hoped to make the deal permanent by focusing on repairing provincial Britain. But Covid-19 has changed all that by derailing Mr Johnson's agenda and exposing his weaknesses as an administrator. At the same time, the Labour Party is also getting a lot smarter when it comes to winning over the workers. In 2019, Jeremy Corbyn lost the working-class vote to the Tories, not just because he dithered over Brexit, but also because, as a privileged fantasist brought up in a manor house in Shropshire, he addressed himself to an imaginary working class of revolutionary proletarians mass-produced in the mines and the factories. By contrast, Sir Keir Starmer, the party's new leader, is determined to address the real working class – that is why he has been careful not to get carried away with Black Lives Matter. During a radio interview this week, he said that Edward Colston's statue should have been removed by democratic deliberation rather than crowd action, and that is why he has appointed Claire Ainsley as his head of policy. Ms Ainsley's appointment is one of Sakir's most important decisions as leader so far. As executive director of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation and as author of a thoroughly researched book, The New Working Class, she spent years studying real workers. She argues that a distinctive new version has grown up beside the old industrial working class. Four in five jobs are now in the service sector, many of them, particularly in cleaning, catering, social care and retailing, poorly paid. The new workers toil in a much more fragmented world than the old working class, often in isolation and bound by individual contracts. They are also much more ethnically diverse. But ethnic diversity doesn't align them with urban progressives. Ms Ainsley identifies four key values that resonate with the new working class – family, fairness, hard work and decency – her priorities are bread-and-butter policies such as statutory sick leave for casual workers, tax breaks for companies that emphasise job security and more visible policing in areas of high crime. Recapturing these people will be far from easy for Labour. The new working class lacks the sense of collective class identity that the old one had and in some areas Labour may find itself torn between their interests and values and those of the young metropolitans whose vote it relies on. Transgender rights, for instance, will be a tricky area. The Conservative Party will not give up its new territory without a fight. 
It has been thinking about Britain's new class structure for longer than Labour has. During Mr Corbyn's policy ice age, Ms Ainsley even acted as an advisor to a conservative-leaning think tank onward. Tory wonks such as Rachel Wolfe, one of the co-authors of The Last Manifesto, and Munira Mirza, the head of the policy unit, have been fashioning policies for the just-about-managing for years, while groups such as blue-collar conservatism help ground policy-making in reality. But a fight for the workers is just what Britain needs. For far too long, the British working class has been subjected to two indignities, being sentimentalised by the left and being written out of history by the right. Britain has much repairing to do on many fronts in the next few years, including facing up to its responsibility for the slave trade. But thanks to the new realism that is gripping both the left and the right on the subject of class, millions of people who work in Britain's casualised service economy have a good chance of being part of this reconstruction.